By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. Hey friends, and welcome back to Deep Dive. My name is Ali, and in each episode, I speak to entrepreneurs, authors, creators, and other inspiring people about how they got to where they are and the strategies and tools that can help us along our shared journey of living healthier, happier, more productive lives. My guest this week is Dr. Rupi Orjla, an NHS medical doctor, entrepreneur, and podcaster whose life changed when he suffered a serious heart condition at the age of 23 while working busy shifts as a hospital doctor. But with the power of nutritional changes and lifestyle, he was actually able to reverse his condition. And because he was then keen to share the medicinal effects of eating well and living well, Rupi started an Instagram page called The Doctor's Kitchen, which soon gained a ton of popularity and evolved into a podcast, into a website, into a blog, an app, multiple best-selling books, multiple TV appearances, the whole shebang. In the conversation, me and Rupi talk about a lot of different things, including his early days working as a doctor and how he realized this thing around like how food is actually the ultimate form of medicine, arguably. We talk about stuff like burnout and how to avoid it when you're working busy shifts and also trying to do stuff on the side. We talk about Rupi's transition from doctor through to entrepreneur, what it's like being a celebrity, and we spend a bunch of time talking about food and how we can optimize our diet and our lifestyles for health and longevity. I absolutely love the conversation and we also did a second half of the conversation where Rupi interviews me on his own podcast, so that'll be linked down below in the show notes and in the video description if you want to check out his podcast. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Dr. Rupi from The Doctor's Kitchen. All right, Rupi, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Um, My pleasure, man. So, I mean, a question that I found myself starting a lot of these conversations with is like, just like, you know, you're you're a GP. You have written a bunch of best-selling cookbooks. You've got your face all over them. You've been interviewed on TV. You're kind of like a celebrity in the world of doctor cooking kind of intersection. How the hell do we get here? <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? That word celebrity that comes up. Some of my parents' friends came around a couple of months ago and they were like, you're a celebrity. And I was like, I don't, I don't see myself like that at all. And it kind of conjured the question as to what is celebrity and what is, what's the new celebrity? Because I, I like look at you and I think you're, you're a celebrity. Oh, I think uh, of you as more of a celebrity because you're like on traditional media. On traditional media. And you have it? books and, and you and, have your face on books. And it's weird <laughs> so, because yeah. like traditional media is dying a very slow death, I right. think, anyway. I don't think it's going to be like radio. I think we're, we're all going to be transitioning to things like YouTube and, and other paid sort of streams as well, especially now that YouTube has got a premium feature, which I, I think is great. Mm, no just removes the ads and yeah, stuff. So yeah, good. Game exactly. changing. Game changing. <laughs> so exactly. productive. Yeah. <laughs> to not have to sit through those ads. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Anytime I see someone else watching YouTube, I'm like, why, why are you sitting through ads? <laughs> just pay the 10 quid a month. Come on. <laughs> Whatever. But um, um, yeah, how, how did we get here? How did we get <laughs> yeah. here? Yeah. So by no fault of my own, it was, it was never the intention to do traditional media was never my intention to write a book or anything it just kind of all came at me rather than me being intentional and manifesting it myself you know i never wrote down oh, i want xyz to happen in the next three four five years i literally came at this whole thing by trying to solve a problem that i had as a general practitioner myself and that was based on my own personal health story. Yeah. But it was really trying to get my patients interested in healthy eating and actually showing them how they can cook healthy meals at home themselves. And I thought the easiest way to scale that is to start a social media account, start a YouTube account where I put some recipes up there. And just instead of me writing down recipes for them, scrambling at the end of my clinic to do that, I'm 
you know, having clinics that were running later and later. And later yeah. I just thought I'll just do that. And that was really the idea behind the doctor's kitchen. And when I started back in 2015, it was very rare for a doctor to get on and talk about nutritional medicine and the health benefits of food and talk about nutrition in general, because as you know, we're not really taught that at medical yeah. school. We're yeah, not we had taught. like two lectures on it in first year and nothing ever since then. Exactly. And unfortunately, painfully, it's very similar right now as well, but we're, we're trying to change that. Um, and within like six months, I think I got approached by an agent. I only had about three or 4,000 followers on Instagram at that point. And then six months after that, I had a book deal. Oh wow! And that's how quickly it occurred. It was it was a very strange period of my life, um, and it it happened very very fast. Okay. Um, yeah. So I've I've got so many questions about that. Like <laughs> I, I, I want to put a, a bit a bit of a, a a bookmark there, and let's re rewind back to for example, like school and medical school. Yeah. What what were you like in in school and medical school? Um, <laughs> and is sort of looking back are there any dots that you could connect to be like oh yeah it was inevitable that i'd become a food celebrity <laughs> or was it completely completely out of the blue yeah yeah so uh so school wise I, I grew up in east london um i was born in barking um we moved quite early to essex and that's where i had like most of my secondary education oh, whereabouts well. in essex in uh, chigwell so we moved oh. to redbridge and then we moved to chigwell no way which uh, which school did you go to i went to bancroft's no way yeah. Oh, I've got a friend who went there. I, t I, t I taught a BMAT course there. No way. And I went to Westcliff because we lived in Essex as well. Westcliff? Yeah, mental. <laughs> That's so like, weird. Who knew? I didn't even ask you about that <laughs> yeah. on the podcast that we just did. <laughs> so we basically kind of grew up around the same grew area. Grew up in the same area. Yeah, nice. yeah. So as you know, it's a, it, I mean, we're, how old are you? 20, 27? 27, yeah. Yeah, so I'm 36. Um, so 10 years apart. It was, a, it was a bit different. There weren't as many Asians around. Mm. Uh, now I think it's, it's a very bigger brown community. Area. Yeah. It's a very brown area. Um, but back then it was, an, it was fairly sort of, standard uh, Caucasian English area um but I, I loved it I think it was great you know uh school was was a real defining point I think for for me uh growing as a person like I I wasn't a very confident person during secondary school it wasn't until the latter years after GCSE when I made the decision to go into medicine mm. that I grew in confidence a bit um how did you grow in confidence I I think it's because I kind of got some direction as to where I wanted to go. Up until the point of age 15 and 16, I was just trying to get A's for the sake of getting A's. Yeah, and because, it'll help at some point further down the line. Exactly, and I was, it was ingrained in me from both my parents to like, you know, just do well at school and figure it out. And actually my parents never wanted me to do medicine. They actually tried to dissuade me from doing it, which is very unusual for Asian parents. Um, both my parents are Punjabi. My dad spent most of his, his life in Punjab. Um, and uh, my mum grew up in England as well, uh, in, in East London. So, yeah, it was it was a bit unusual for them to dissuade me. But they had doctor friends themselves, and they were like, "It's very hard. It's long hours. You don't get paid as much. Go start a business or do something in that sort of sphere." Yeah, it's quite a Punjabi way of thinking, yeah. from, from from what I hear. <laughs> yeah, 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 very entrepreneurial. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. the entrepreneurial streak for sure. Um, so when I decided to to go into medicine, that was like I have a direction in my life, and that's that sort of like got me through those formative years because I think up until that point, I didn't really have an idea of what I wanted to do. Okay. Uh, and I think having some direction is really important in life, that sense of purpose. Yeah. How, how did you figure out that you wanted to do medicine? So it was actually my mum who got ill um, when I was uh, 11 or 12. So she started suffering from random attacks of anaphylaxis, oh. which 
I mean, your audience yeah. will know, you know, worst form of allergy, uh, throat closes, lose your blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So when I was 11, she took me into um, the living room and um, she gave me an EpiPen and she said, I need you to take the lid off and I need you to inject me with this EpiPen in my thigh right now. And I remember taking this EpiPen, I was like, oh my God, like, all right, fine, I did it. And I pushed it and you get that little click mm. and the, the needle goes through and, and whatever. Um, and that was a dummy EpiPen. So my mom was actually giving me a task to do because she was like, if this ever happens, you know what to do in that scenario. You go into mommy's bag, you grab the EpiPen and you inject me only if there's no one else around. And so that sort of memory was sort of in my, in my head and around 15, 16, I, I went and did some work experience with some medic friends of ours. And that, that's when I sort of connected the dots. And I was like, okay, that experience, uh, 11, 12 year old, got me interested in science and medicine and you know, looking after people. And that experience within work experience, age 15, 16, and that's sort of what gave me direction. Ah, that's what I want to do. That's, that's where I'm heading. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So you then kind of have it, it sounds like having, having that direction of like, okay, I'm going to go for this medical school thing. Yeah. You said it kind of made you more confident. How, yeah. How did it do that? I think having a direction as to where you want to go, what you want to be, um, definitely gave me a lot more confidence. Like I could see, I could crystallize that vision of what I will look like after I leave medicine. And what I saw when I did work experience was that a friend of ours who was a GP, he just had this lovely warm rapport with all of his patients. I was sat there, you know, in the corner, a typical sort of work experience kid, not really saying much and stuff. And he was there like hugging his patients and they were all like big smiles and stuff. And he was a Punjabi guy with a big turban and like a real big personality as well. And that like, I wanted to be that guy at that point in my life. Anyway, I wanted to be that guy. I, I wanted to, you know, instill that sort of love and connection with, with people. And that's that's what gave me confidence as to why I was doing what I was doing, why I was you know, studying medicine and you know working long hours and trying to go for the A's and A stars and all the rest of it. Mm. That's what gave me a lot more confidence. And then, you know, speaking uh, to to other medics and going through the whole interview process, that as you know, they wanted you to be a well-rounded individual. They wanted you to be this, you know, person that wasn't just someone who was a bookworm, but someone who actually did, you know, Duke of Edinburgh and all these extracurricular activities. And, and that kind of gave me a lot more confidence, something that I didn't really have before. Um, I think I just grew as a person as well. You know, teenage years are a bit strange and you didn't really have, as an Asian kid surrounded by a lot of kids that weren't didn't look like me I kind of felt a bit lost you know I didn't speak Punjabi I still don't speak Hindi um, I spoke English but then I wasn't like my English friends and then I started listening to like Nitin Sawney and, and Talvin Singh and I was like okay this is kind of who I am I'm, I'm sort of lost in two generations and I don't really have that and so that was kind of what gave me a bit more confidence going forward that I, I felt a bit of connection it was a I don't know if you, you're old enough to remember like Jay Sean when he came out with his yeah. music yeah, so it was around the same time. And I was like, Asians can be cool, you know? <laughs> you know, they can be like R&B singers. They can do all these other things. So that was, yeah, that was kind of inspiring at that time as well. Interesting. 
Yeah. How, like how, how much of the kind of desire to do medicine was part of the Asians can be cool thing, do you reckon? We're going to take a very quick break to introduce our sponsor for this episode, who is Brilliant. I've been using Brilliant for the last few years, and they're a fantastic interactive platform with online courses in maths, science, and computer science. My personal favorites are the computer science courses. I think they're absolutely fantastic. And when I was initially applying to med school, I was actually torn between applying to medicine and applying to computer science. And I ended up going with medicine in the end, which I really don't regret. But there's a big part of me that really wanted to continue learning the stuff around computer science, continuing to understand how coding works. And the courses on Brilliant have given me that foundation in computer science, which I didn't have before. The courses are really fun, engaging, and interactive. And the way they teach you stuff is based on very first principles thinking. Like they'll teach you a concept and then they'll take you through interactive exercises to actually help solidify your understanding of that concept. And it's pretty cool because they're always updating the library with new courses. For example, there's one they've just released called Everyday Maths, which is kind of like a visual exploration of the maths that we use in everyday life. Like for example, fractions and percentages and putting them in a context that makes it very understandable and certainly very different to the kind of boring way that I was taught maths when I was in school. The courses and lessons are particularly good if you have a busy life with lots of stuff going on because they really teach you the stuff in bite-sized chunks. So you can always return to a course at a later date if you don't have time to do it in one sitting. If any of that sounds up your street, then do head over to brilliant.org forward slash deep dive and the first 200 people to hit that link, which is also gonna be in the video description and in the show notes, will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. So thank you so much to Brilliant for sponsoring this episode. I think it was pretty genuine actually because I didn't have that parental pressure like you must do medicine or you must do law or all this kind of stuff uh for me it came pretty intuitively that that was what i wanted to do so i didn't i didn't really get that uh, I, yeah i didn't get that push like a like a lot of other asian kids might have had mm. and so yeah for me at least it was like ah, this is what i really want to do so i was quite comfortable going into medicine okay and then so you got into med school what was that like over that five six year period that was party yeah? <laughs> it was great i loved it because you know even though my parents are pretty relaxed and stuff i don't think they were particularly you know stereotypically strict going and living in london i went to imperial college lived on campus met a whole bunch of new friends you know uh going out middle of the week and stuff turning up late for lectures, you know, learning all this really cool stuff, getting involved in the university. That was amazing. That was great. And I, I look at those years and I just think that th those are really what made, and I've got like some of my closest friends who are, are still people that I met my first year of university mm. and they're still like the tightest friends that I have. So that, that was a great experience and it's sort of ingrained in everything. Nice. Yeah. And so like when I, when, well, when people ask about, ask me about my university years, you know, I, I, I was doing the sort of entrepreneurial content-y thing yeah. from fairly early on. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you had a more kind of normal university yeah. experience. <laughs> like you weren't actively weird. <laughs> no, no, I, w I wasn't, I wasn't active. I would call you weird. I would say that you were like probably ahead of the game, but I don't think I had that entrepreneurial streak uh, in me from, early on. I never really was like chasing the hustle. I was having deep and meaningful conversations with my mates at like two in the morning. Uh, I was being exposed to a different side of culture. Like I never used to go out like clubbing or anything like that during my teens, like a lot of my other friends were doing. I was at home hitting the books. And mm. so really I had that freedom to explore what it was like being, you know, an independent individual living in London. And that's, I, I, I really appreciate that because I think if I dove straight into you know, working as hard outside of the lectures as I was, you know, you know, in, in lectures, then I probably wouldn't have enjoyed that experience as much. And I would have felt like I would have lost out on something personally. Yeah. Anyway, that was my, that would be my, my intuition, but who knows? Mm. Yeah. I think that's an experience that uh, a, f a few people I know have had who 
did really well and spent a lot of time working where they feel at the end of it like what was the point almost yeah like you're still in the same foundational hospital as everyone else yeah. and everyone else seems to have had these like you know genuinely interesting experiences at, at university whereas yeah. if you're kind of continuing to hit the books because that's a game you were playing in school yeah then uh, you know it, it can be unsatisfying for some people obviously not for everyone some people freaking love it and that's fine people are living their best life yeah yeah um, i think i was always in that sort of like bottom or second to bottom quartile of medicine throughout and like that didn't phase me as much as it would have other people i mean i went to imperial and i'm sure the similar experience with you you're, you're dealing with a lot of alpha type people who are just there to win mm. and i didn't have that drive medicine i knew i just wanted to be a really good doctor and if you think about my aspirations going into medicine it was inspired by a general practitioner who you know isn't that sort of stereotypical alpha person he's yeah. a surgeon and you're a surgeon or uh, someone you'd find at a tertiary hospital uh, um it's yeah, it was it was a very much relaxed opinion I had about medicine, um, and and even so, midway through medicine, I uh, my intercalated BSc was in management, so I I I think I must have had I really thought about this too much, but I must have had some inklings towards entrepreneurship at some point during my medical school, because doing management where we learn about marketing uh accounting um all the different elements that make up our nhs health system that i really appreciated because it gave me a much clearer understanding about the healthcare system that we work in and how that compares to others um that was really pivotal for me and that's when i started thinking about things outside medicine but i didn't have the confidence to execute on anything hmm. what do you mean you didn't have the confidence uh, so I didn't start a side hustle. Okay. I didn't uh, start a you know secondary company on the side. I didn't get into making my own website. Yeah. I you know I, I didn't. I might have had ideas, um, but I, I didn't have the confidence to to go and chase them. Because I read I read the um, we were talking about it uh, uh, earlier, four hour work the, week. the four hour work yeah. week. So I read the four hour work week at the same time. And you know, armed with that knowledge, some people go and do it straight away. Right. So someone like yourself, you, you, you read that book, you were inspired, boom, you executed on it. Me, I was inspired, but I was like, eh, maybe, not for me, maybe I'll do this at some point in the future, excuse, excuse, excuse. Yeah. And so at that point in my life, I, I didn't have the drive to, to do okay. that, yeah. Do you, do you regret anything about your time in med school? Um, the only thing I regret is not, not, it's, it sounds pretty fickle, but like not doing more sport. Because when you, I mean, I, I did a little bit of sport. I, I played hockey and stuff, but I had the opportunity to do so much more. And when you're a real adult and yeah. you've got like a job and you've got to go in and stuff, you can't do any of that stuff. Yeah. Like you just can't. And so that opportunity of like having play and, you know, having time to, to do all these things, that that's the only regret I really have about medicine. Okay. Um, I don't regret like starting my own side hustle. I don't regret like not going out enough because I think I did a lot of that stuff. I had a really nice community of, of people that I loved. I lived out every year. You know, I did an intercalated degree that was uh, aside from the norm. You know, it was a very um, diverse group of people that we had in that management course. There were only about yeah. 30, 40 people and everyone was bouncing ideas of each other. So there isn't an element that I really regret about medicine. No. Do you do you have any regrets about medicine? Not really. No. no? Yeah. I, I mean, I had a great time. I thought it was super fun. Yeah. Um, I thought my balance of work versus other things was was pretty solid. Uh, the only things I regret was, you know, I had a had a bit of a 
a, a breakup with someone where I, I was I, I I handled it in a way that I could I could have done better. It's a, you know thing, things like that where I was accidentally mean to someone without meaning to be mean to some them, and then yeah, you know, just stuff stuff like that. I think like listening to your story is is interesting because. I think when I, uh, the, the impression I get amongst people who watch or listen to my stuff is that, um, I mean, and, and this is somewhat understandable, like people who have normal jobs, yeah. like someone who's working as a junior doctor or, you know, their first time job as a consultant or, you know, any, but someone in their 20s or even 30s who has a normal job who didn't do the hustle tech bro productivity entrepreneur thing from the age of 12. Yeah. It's like, it can often seem as if, well, I guess if I want to have side hustles, I, I had to do it from the age of 13. I had to have done something at university. Yeah. And you were very much not that person. Nah. You were just like, oh, I, I just, I just want to be a GP, want to have a good time, want to yeah. go out to nightclubs at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And, I'd be, and at the time I was like, I'm gonna, I've got to make my website, screw the nightclubs. Yeah. But it's cool that you had such a kind of non-entrepreneurially yeah. uh, sort of early, early days. Yeah. Um, so then you graduate med school, you become a junior doctor. Yeah. And then you kind of, it sounded like you went through that and became a fully fledged GP at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, a, yeah. a big thing that happened to me was uh, I, I became a patient. So mm. three months into the job, I was working at Basildon Hospital. Um, so big DGH is a <laughs> wicked place to work. You know, I, I had loads of friends. We, we were living there as well on campus. But obviously, as you know, stressful job, night shifts, really long corridors, you know, running to cardiac arrest and stuff. It was, yeah, it was a nightmare. Um, and I started suffering with atrial fibrillation episodes. So for the listeners, uh, irregular heartbeat, up to 200 beats per minute, lasting anywhere between 12, 48 hours uh, at a time. And that was sort of um, the point at which I realized I was a lot more vulnerable to illness than my peers. And I don't want to give the impression that I was a big drinker or anything like that. I wasn't a smoker, didn't have a weight issue or nothing like that. I definitely wasn't taking drugs. No matter how many times I've asked by different cardiologists and physiologists, do you take drugs? No, I don't take drugs. Because it's very unusual for a 24-year-old to have these episodes with no known triggers. And I would just flip into these episodes two or three times a week whilst I was working. And I remember the first time I had it, I was admitted to uh, MAU and uh, I was wheeled along the corridor and... I had my shirt on and stuff, uh, not my shirt, I had a gown on. I was hooked up to a cardiac monitor and all the rest of it. And that point when I was wheeled into the ward along that corridor, I felt so embarrassed. And I had no idea what it was like to experience that very simple action of just being wheeled from one ward to another ward. And I never forget that experience of being a patient. And that was really pivotal for me because we can all empathize with, with patients as, as much as possible. Um, you know, we're, we're taught communication skills and, and all this, you know, biopsychosocial stuff. But at the end of it, if you haven't experienced it yourself, it's very hard to, to understand what that was. And so that was a really big turning point for, for me. And then, and that's also, I guess, what yeah. led me down the whole nutrition, lifestyle and, and health optimization path. How, how was that a turning point? We are going to take a little quick break from the podcast to introduce the sponsor of this podcast, which is Curiosity Stream. If you haven't heard by now, Curiosity Streams is the world's leading documentary streaming subscription platform founded by John Hendricks, who's the founder of the Discovery Channel. And on Curiosity Stream, they've got hundreds of really high quality, high budget documentaries covering all sorts of things from science and technology to history and ancient civilizations to food and medicine and meditation and like all of the stuff in between. Now, the really cool thing about Curiosity Stream is that they support independent creators. And so there is this service called Nebula, which you might have heard of 
Reserve. It's an independent streaming platform that's run by me and a bunch of other creators. And on Nebula, we can put content like videos and behind the scenes and long form, longer form stuff without worrying about things like the YouTube algorithm. And so for example, on Nebula, I have a bunch of exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. We actually have the original season zero of the Deep Dive podcast, which started off as like remote Zoom live streams during the pandemic. And that is only available on Nebula. You won't find it anywhere else. So if you enjoy the sorts of conversations we have on Deep Dive, you might like to see, you know, a whole year before we started this podcast properly, once the pandemic stopped, what sort of conversations I was having with people on Zoom. I've also got a series of videos on Nebula called Workflow, which is where I deep dive into some of my favorite productivity tools. And on Nebula, you also get early ad-free access to my videos and videos from a bunch of other creators that you might be familiar with, like Thomas Frank and Tom Scott and Legal Eagle and Lindsay Ellis. And the really cool thing is that because CuriosityStream loves supporting independent creators, we've got a little bundle deal, which is that if you sign up for an account on CuriosityStream, you actually get free access to Nebula bundled with that. So if you head over to curiositystream.com forward slash deep dive, then for less than $15 a year, you can get full access to CuriosityStream's incredible library of documentaries and also free access to all of the stuff on Nebula bundled with that. So head over to curiositystream.com forward slash deep dive to get the bundle deal. So thank you, CuriosityStream, for sponsoring this episode. So I went and saw a number of different cardiologists, um, some of whom are best in Europe, if not the world. I had electrophysiology studies. I had all the investigations you can imagine. I was going to have an ablation, which is a, a relatively simple procedure. It was sold to me as curative, although now we, we know it's not as effective as, as we'd like it to be. Um, but it's where you, you burn an area around the pulmonary vein to stop misfiring cells. I had all the studies to demonstrate that it was AF, not something else like a re-entry pathway or a different type of uh, SVT. And... Um, I was going to have this ablation. I was uh, I was going to have uh, warfarin for a couple of months to preempt it and stuff. And to now thin, thin the blood. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were some other procedures I think at the time, like cryo uh, version, which doesn't require warfarinization. But anyway, I was going to have warfarin. And I remember my girlfriend at the time uh, dragged me down because I was dragging my feet with this whole thing, and she dragged me down to the uh, the, the anti-coag clinic. I was like, "You're going to start warfarin right today." And it, anyway, long story short, my mum was the person that said to me you really should optimize your diet and lifestyle give it six months if you've got time before you entertain doing something quite drastic like uh, an ablation and in her mind you know someone's going into her son's heart and burning a hole in it that was mm. literally how she described it yeah which you know it's technically it's what happens as drastic as that yeah um so so anyway to appease her i thought okay I'll do this diet and lifestyle stuff. You know, I'll speak to my cardiologist first and make sure, you know, I'm not putting myself at risk. But ultimately, I'm going to have this ablation. Like this, yeah. this, what she's saying is so stupid. Um, and so I was on flecainide as and when, which is an antiarrhythmic drug. Uh, I was on bisoprolol, uh, antihypertensive medication as well. Um, and what happened over that six month to 12 month period is I just started optimizing very small things at a time. So out went cereals in the morning. Uh, and then I in came like leftovers from like before a little so bit more. Were greens. you like fat at the time or what? No, I wasn't fat or anything. I've always oh. been fairly lean, Okay, but I was eating a lot of refined sugars and carbohydrates. Okay. Uh, it was, you can't, when look, someone looks at my diet, back then they would just say it's a normal diet for a junior doctor it's cereal with maybe a little bit of juice yeah. uh if i'm feeling healthy maybe some frozen berries on top and Fancy. uh it would be like a soggy sandwich from the hospital canteen or whatever slot they were serving 
Uh, it would be something probably taken at like seven or 8 p.m. on the way back from work because, you know, we don't have any time to cook. Um, it just was a normal way of eating. Yeah, that, you know, it was that's pretty, normal. pretty accurate <laughs> yeah. for a lot of people. And yeah. like, I don't want to demonize like what is normal for a lot of other people. But certainly for me, combined with the added stress of poor sleep, with the added stress of learning new things on the job for the first time, the added pressure, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff, that compounded and resulted in me having a heart issue. Hmm. That's the only way I can really conceptualize as to why this was happening. Because when I optimized all those different things, it went away. And I appreciate there's oh. lots of other- Why, well, just like went away? Yeah, yeah, after, well not immediately, after yeah. about a year okay. of optimizing things slowly but slowly. So what I would be fastidious at would be tracking when I was having these AF episodes. And so, you know, it'd be a Tuesday uh, at work, 3 p.m., lasted X number of hours. And then the next day would be like, oh, Friday came in, lost about four hours. And I'd also look at triggers before. What was I doing that, uh, that morning? Had I, had I worked out? Had I gone for a run? Had I had any coffee? I didn't drink coffee at the mm -hmm. time. Um, you know, what things had I eaten before? You know, what kind of state? What was my sleep like? All those different things. I was lo looking at it pretty, you know, vaguely uh, to, to just get some accountability as to what might be going on. And so after looking at all these different things and changing a few things in my diet, bit by bit, out went cereals, out went like sandwiches at lunchtime, in came like me bringing Tupperware. I was labeled Tupperware boy by my consultant at the time in respiratory medicine. It was, he'd always you know, take the piss out of me, which is great. You know, it was all like, all banter. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just all those different elements. And then I started getting to like, stress reduction, meditation. I'd been taught how to meditate by my parents when I was a teenager. And so that kind of came into play again. And then when I wasn't doing night shifts, I was you know, trying to tuck myself into bed a little bit earlier. I, instead of just doing like running, I was a keen runner at the time, I would do things like yoga and mobility and flow and all these things that sound a bit woo woo, but yeah. I thought of sort of just started getting into it from the very little research that I did at the time. And yeah, after a year and a half, I noticed like AF episode went from one a week then one every two weeks and then one a month. And then I remember vividly, I was like, it's been three months. I haven't had, I haven't had an episode. And I went to see my cardiologist. I was seeing two at the time. And they said, look, sometimes AF can go through a period of like where it just goes away and it will come back, but it's likely to come back. So just be aware of that. And then I went to a year and then a couple of years. And then, you know, it's been over 10 years now. And I still, I still see my cardiologist. I still have like checkups and all the mm. rest of it, but it went away. And so that, that was my introduction into A, how on earth is this possible? Like what, why would that make a difference? And B, why when we taught this kind of stuff? If it is effective, even though it's anecdotal, yeah. we should really be looking further at this. And actually when I did a bit of research, I realized like, you know, there's things that we can do for things like type two diabetes, the things that I'm seeing every day. Obesity obviously is the most obvious one, cardiovascular disease, dementia. And then, you know, the more research you do, the, the, the bigger you realize that there's this huge amount of literature that we've just been sitting on. We haven't really been putting into practice. And so that was, that was how I got into, it, I guess. Oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds pretty magical where you yeah. literally just sort of track your uh, AF episodes and yeah. be like, oh, it turns out that when I actually get good sleep and when I meditate to get less stressed, I have fewer of these episodes. What the hell? Yeah. Because I guess to my mind, it's like, oh yeah, sleep, health, uh, this, yeah. this kind of stuff. It's all kind of a long-term type thing. And yeah. I'll, I'll sort it out at some point. But you, we don't really, 
and we were talking about this in the previous in the previous interview as well we don't really think into it like that long term about stuff yeah so i guess for you you had that very clear feedback loop of like oh shit this this stuff actually works yeah this is the thing we were talking about because a lot of the things that i talk about within the diet and lifestyle space people are thinking oh that's to prevent me getting you know fat and overweight and type 2 diabetes when i'm 45 50 55 you know, you don't really have that immediate feedback as to, I need to start doing this now to optimize my health, to improve my longevity, and also to perform my performance right now. We don't really have that sort of connection. And because I had that immediate feedback with my own condition and my threshold for illness is a lot lower than other people of you know, the same age group, that's kind of what propelled me forward. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I'm trying to think of what the equivalent would be. It's like, if, if for example... I could wear an arrow ring or yeah. something that would tell me your performance today was 85%. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, it turns out that when I don't eat KFC, my performance goes to 90%. Yeah. That would be great. It's just, we don't really have a metric like that. Yeah. Unless you have a health condition where you've, you've literally got a metric you can track. <laughs> exactly. And what I was doing, I guess, uh, back in 2009 now was pretty analog. It was just me writing down things on my phone or notepad. Yeah. Um, what was happening and when it was happening and what things had done before. And that was it. Whereas now, you know, we're moving to a space where it doesn't have to be as analog as that and it, everything can be automated. So, you know, so I'm wearing an aura ring. I've actually worn one for about three years. I know, for example, that if I eat too late, I go to sleep straight after eating, it disrupts my deep sleep and I have much lower deep sleep than I have REM sleep and that will impact how I perform the next oh, day. Interesting. So I yeah. used to wear an arrow ring for about six months yeah. and I found I would never act on the data because oh, really? I would look at the number in the morning be like, readiness level 73. <laughs> I mean, okay, 64. I'd be like, yeah, well, I know I only got three hours of sleep last night. So yeah, obviously yeah. That's, that's obvious. Yeah. But I didn't quite... The, the, the only things I've kind of anecdotally noticed are when I drink caffeine, mm. like if I find myself unable to sleep, I think, did I have a coffee like at 5 p.m.? Oh, crap. Yeah, I did. Did I have a Diet Coke at like 10 p.m.? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay, cool. Maybe that's a problem. And yeah, so I've yeah. stopped doing that. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I don't I didn't really have other data points where I can track that, that, that number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting what you said about caffeine because I've just done a 30-day caffeine-free sort of fast. And I love coffee. I absolutely love coffee. You know, I love the ritual, the aroma, everything. Um, so I, I, I take coffee out of my diet for... Uh, probably once a year for, for 30 days. And I was tracking, I was looking quite carefully at my aura ring this time around and my deep and REM sleep was so much more improved. And I usually only drink caffeine before 12 p.m. as well. I'm not one of these people that has a 3 p.m. So I'm pretty sensitive to caffeine as I've realized. And so now that I've gone back to drinking regular coffee again, yeah. I'm going to be having it even earlier. And I know anecdotally over the last 10 days since I've started that again, my, my sleep's a lot better. So the, the I, thing is, I, I'm of that, I, I'm of that way of like trying to optimize tracking everything. Yeah. Exactly. Tracking those different things. And that, that appeals to me, but it might not appeal to a lot of other people yeah. listening or watching to this. It depends on like what yeah. their intrinsic <laughs> drivers are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it definitely appeals to me. I actually was, uh, I recently ordered the latest hour ring and oh, I just you? haven't, haven't sent them my sizing. It's just been, I've just been on the bedside table for the last like do it. two I've months. I've got the new one as well. Nice. It's, uh, it's really good. It looks like the fancy one. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 the issue is, so I went, I went for the kind of like that black color as well. Ooh. But anytime my mum sees me, me, me with it, she like basically has a stroke. She's like, oh my God, why are you wearing jewelry? It's really, really? bad. Oh, really? I, <laughs> so. I, I think, as you can tell, like, 
like I don't wear anything. I don't yeah. wear a watch. I don't wear a necklace or anything. This is the only, I've joked with my fiance that um, what she needs to do instead of getting me a ring is just getting me an aura ring for my uh, ring finger. Oh, nice. Yeah. That'd be good. <laughs> yeah, she's not on board with it. She's but. not on board with that. No, that's a shame. <laughs> so we were talking about aura ring, tracking, tracking stuff, having those metrics and then being yeah. able to sort of optimize your lifestyle based on that. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a lot more about those specific things, but let's, if we go kind of back to the story then. Yeah. So you had, you realized the impact that these different health and like yoga meditation type changes were genuinely having on your life as yeah. evidenced by the fact that your atrial fibrillation episodes were reducing in, in yeah. frequency um so at that point most people would be like all right cool it's a thing i've sorted my diet out yeah w what happened next <laughs> what happened next yeah so i started having more open honest conversations with patients about it um so i started gp training i moved down to brighton one of the best things i ever did I was actually, that was a mini failure actually. So oh. I was actually trying to stay in London because my girlfriend at the time uh, was living in London. And when I didn't get into uh, London, I, I almost considered taking a, a full year out actually and just doing something different. I'm really glad I didn't, but went to Brighton, started GP training and I got known, I got a bit of a reputation as being that GP who would talk to the patients about nutrition. And, and then like, my clinic started getting longer and longer. And, and as a trainee, you get like 20 yeah. or third, 25 minutes. And so I'd, I'd use the whole 25 minutes and then like it would go over and then I started writing down recipes. Um, I realized I didn't answer your question earlier about how I got into food and my whole family are all foodies. Right. So we'd always have the food channel on, on the TV when oh, we were growing okay. up and stuff, watch Saturday kitchen for years. Yeah. Like I love Saturday kitchen is like my favorite show. Um, for the for the American audience, it's basically a cooking show, and it's really popular. Actually, I think Dave Grohl is going to be on this Saturday as well. Like, it's just one of those iconic BBC shows. Yeah. Um, so we'd always have that. And like, when I was at med school, I lived in a house which were which was really experimental with food, and it wasn't necessarily healthy food. It was like you know barbecue or pastas or steak sandwiches and herb blends and all that kind of stuff. So I've always been into to mm. food from from that. So you already had that kind of background in food stuff. Yeah. So like, while I was doing coding, you were doing cooking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So the same thing. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I I would always have that ability to reflect what someone wanted to eat. Uh, with little tweaks and hacks that could make it slightly healthier for them. Yeah. So I remember uh, chatting to a guy about um, his his breakfast routine, and he had you know he was on the verge of type two diabetes. It was classed as metabolic syndrome, and so we I started talking to him about oats and like you know changing up his oats and adding a few spices and pumpkin seeds and why those might be healthy. And he like his eyes lit up. And I remember that moment because I started having more conversations with people from different backgrounds: Jamaican background, Korean background, Sri Lankan background all these different elements and they would tell me about their food that they would eat like Sri Lankan guy I remember I learned about cashew curry for the first time from from this guy who had IBD and I was like okay well maybe we could tweak this and add some green peas or like what kind of green vegetables do you like or how do we get more fiber in your diet all that different stuff and again like people yeah. just lie up it wasn't me just saying you need to eat better. You need to get saturated fat out of your diet. You need to yeah. make sure you're not having too much sugar. Here is a, a healthy plate with a kale salad on it. It wasn't that. It was like making it super interesting and something that they felt that they really wanted to try out themselves and giving and empowering them to do it. And that's sort of where I found my purpose. Um, and that's where I got the idea for the doctor's kitchen. It was really early. It was like back in 2012, I think. Um, but I didn't, I didn't do anything 
about okay. it. So, so at this point, you're you're a GP trainer. You're having your 25 minute consultations, which yeah. is like two and a half times longer than a normal yeah. GP would have because they have yeah. 10 minutes. And you're like, you're finding yourself giving people lifestyle advice, but instead of just doing the thing that I would do in that case, which is about be like, hey, you know, you should probably eat a bit healthier. I'm like, how? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll let you know when I find out. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, maybe order a Pokeball from Delivery rather yeah, than yeah. just a, you know, a, a fried chicken. You were actually like writing down recipes based on your previous sort of, uh, sort of tacit knowledge of yeah. the cooking world from like a decade of consuming Saturday night, uh, Saturday morning kitchen or yeah, whatever yeah. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was like, I, I mean, I've got like a huge collection of cookbooks. I've learned from obviously the, the greats like Jamie Oliver, Nigella, Nigel Slater. These guys like understand flavor super well. Um, and I was able to apply that knowledge to what I was doing in clinic. It was, it was a bit of a surreal feeling actually. And I mean, I guess now with, with hindsight, you can say that I was molding my passion with with work and i was turning my my work into you know something that i found quite playful rather than just going through the the algorithms and choosing okay this is the medication you need and you know being a sort of robot that was kind of where i found uh, a a lot of like the the colorful elements of medicine that was about so you're doing the referral to dermatology but at the same time you're like (laughs) have you considered all the nutrition things you can do for your skin yeah absolutely (laughs) and And they're like no i haven't really but if you tell me then i'll I'll figure it out yeah absolutely and like you know it was never as like a sold as a panacea uh it was never really like oh you well (laughs) i could give you this drug but really should be improving your diet it was always like no it's an and not a like either yeah and i think that's really important whenever i speak to people even on a public scale now about food because there is this sort of pervasive myth that it's like oh okay well you're either on the woo-woo side where you're giving people nutraceuticals and green powders and all the rest of it and trying to cure cancer with like some erroneous herbs or you know you're you're just doing pharmaceuticals and stuff and actually i I think we need to take that real blended approach to nutritional medicine which is now garnering a lot of sort of mainstream uh, interest. Can we do a collab video on my channel where you teach me some weeknight recipes? Yeah, man, that let's are, do like, it. Healthy and productive, so that because because my problem right now is like I go home and I'm like the the paradox of choice. I could go to Tesco or Waitrose on the way home, and then I have to figure out what the hell am I going to buy? Yeah. What are the where's where, broccoli, beans, carrots, browns, yeah, like, yeah, all yeah. the vegetables? Like, what am I going to use as my carb? Should I just get some oven chips? Oh, should I get roast potatoes, Yorkshire <laughs> puddings, rice? Yeah. I don't know. And then it's like the protein. Should I go for salmon? Should I get some kind of meat? Should I get some kind of chicken? Like, what's the deal with that? And it's just like, you know what? Screw this. I value my time at X amounts, X dollars per hour. It's yeah. quicker and cheaper and easier to get a Deliveroo. Yeah. Therefore, let me just do that, and I'll spend that time. I don't know in theory working on my book but in in fact actually just watching youtube videos yeah yeah. and yeah. i end up just in this takeaway cycle because like well <laughs> yeah it's just too hard to and i just I, I, I don't have a system for it i don't have a, a process and i think i'm quite a sort of default kind of guy yeah. that if i could just have the same recipe and just re- have that on repeat every other day yeah my life would be a lot better where i would know exactly what i need to have in my pantry exactly what to buy in the supermarket yeah but i just don't right now and so it's just delivery is the, the path of least resistance yeah no i get you and you you're not you're not unique in that conundrum as well i think a lot of people fall into that pattern of having not having a default and not having um a backup plan actually one of the things i always talk about in my talks is making sure you have a backup meal because it happens to everyone like when i'm uh coming back from a late shift at like 8 p.m yeah uh i i'm there like scrolling through deliverer as well and i'm yeah. thinking you know well, maybe i should just get one of these things and to be fair to some of the delivery companies they do have healthy options yeah. not that we go for them at that time uh, in the <laughs> yeah. evening but um i always say you've got to have a backup meal you've got to have like a meal you can make in 10 minutes 
which uses store cupboard ingredients. You don't have to go to a supermarket to go get it. Frozen items, a few uh, spices, herbs, pastes, and some nutritious ingredients that you actually enjoy as well, not something that you're forcing yourself down. For me, it's this, this like whole grain pesto pasta, which I have with peas and like a whole bunch of other like herbs and spices. And I, I can make it in 10 minutes with my eyes closed. It's so easy. And I know that I've always got that as a backup when I'm feeling peckish and that kind of stuff. Um, but yes, for to a collab video, I'd love to do something like that because I think instilling principles of healthy eating rather than specific recipes. I know that we're, we're yeah. saying this in front of my cookbooks and stuff, but like, I think that's the way to get people out of the conundrum. Yeah. The other thing I would say is uh, I, I'm not puritanical about this kind of stuff. I don't think that we need to necessarily in this lifestyle that we all have to be able to cook every single meal from scratch every day. Uh, I think there are lots of other healthier options. And I think in the, in the if I if I forecast in the future, what I think is going to happen is we cook for pleasure. And hopefully I can demonstrate to people that cooking is like a you know meditative thing and something that you can actually enjoy and it's pleasurable and you share it with friends and all the rest of it. But also in a, in a world where we're trying to optimize every element of our lifestyle, we will have... Uh, Greenhouses that surround every city in the world, which demo, uh, uh, growing optimized ingredients, which are you know phytochemical rich, as well as nutrient rich, and then that will be delivered to a ghost kitchen, which is cooked probably using robots, and then that's delivered to us using automated delivery systems, and that's probably one of the ways in which we're going to dig ourselves out of the hole where we have a very unhealthy environment today. That's what I think is going to be the future. And I don't want to fight against that yeah. because I think I'd, I'd be a bit of a Luddite if I was t trying to preach to everyone, you need to cook from home every single day. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just against the pace of change. Yeah. But I, I do think the art of cooking, the love of cooking should, should not really be lost in the same way, you know, we're surrounded by books right now, even though we have Kindles. Mm. There is something about it. There's something intuitive something that is hard-coded in our evolution to love the art of cooking. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't think we should really lose that. So yeah. hopefully I can do that for yeah, you. Yeah, that'll be so fun. Like it's, <laughs> a, it's only recently that I've, I've realized that cooking is actually fun. And weirdly, the mental model for that, that, I, I, that made me realize this was I was playing Horizon Zero Dawn on the PlayStation. Yeah. And I was like, you know, to, to get some of the equipment to upgrade your satchels, you have to go out and like kill rabbits and stuff like in the wildlife. It's like, you know, this robot ap apocalyptic type, type game, but you have to kill the occasional rabbit to get the boar skin or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, huh, this reminds me of back in the day when I was playing World of Warcraft, where you would you would level up your cooking skill yeah. and you'd build like a campfire and you would turn your boar meat into this cool thing i was like that that was kind of fun it kind of felt good to be cooking this virtual virtual meat and virtual veg in a game and i was like wait a minute i, I could do this in real <laughs> life from. what the hell <laughs> like absolutely game changing yeah. that was like a mind-blowing moment for me that i had uh a few months ago when i had covid and i was playing horizon yeah, yeah, like yeah. 10 days straight yeah, i don't yeah. normally play playstation um and, and then i was like all right you know what new year's resolution let's take this cooking thing seriously so then I went out and bought, I actually have them over here. You know, uh, Le Creuset does this Harry Potter signature edition. No way. So I, I got didn't like know that. two Dutch ovens and a cast iron pan and like a bunch of spatulas and stuff. And then I got super excited about cooking because now I had the gear, which I'd yeah. spent like a stupid amount of money on to, because uh, it had Harry Potter on it. So. I, I'm going <laughs> to show you how to make the most use of those pans for sure. Because those are similar pans to the ones that are, they're not Harry Potter yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> branded, but th those are the, the same pans that I have. Nice. And I, I make so much use out of them. Yeah. I feel like you're about to embark on like your own four hour body uh, book <laughs> with like Tim Ferriss. Like, yeah. you know how he like. I've read that book as well. I think it was The 4-Hour Body or The 4-Hour Cook, something like that. 4-Hour Chef, yeah. 4-Hour Chef, that's it, yeah. 
yeah, I've read that book. It is incredible. Like the detail this guy goes into is amazing. And I feel like you're at the start of this journey. Like people are probably going to be watching like, how does this guy not know who Yotamad Lange is? But I reckon, you know, give it like a year's time. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's it, yeah i'm excited for you man nice yeah no this is gonna be fun um so many questions on the cooking front um i do also have it in my bucket list that i want to do like a fishing weekend trip where we actually fish and cook and stuff I love that we should yeah. do that as a collab we can vlog it as well we can oh, bring friends along that'd be, that'd be fun if there's someone yeah. who does fishing Gordon's, like nodding trips, in the yeah. yeah that would be that'd be so if cool. anyone's listening to this who, who, who hosts fishing trips and stuff in the uk <laughs> then uh drop us an email yeah <laughs> and yeah. we would be very very interested so loads of questions about the food thing, which I will put a little bookmark in. Let's go back to your GP. You're doing the recipes okay. and then you go to Australia after you've yeah, done your GP training. I like leave. So I, quali- I passed all my GP exams really early because I was super keen. And then the GP surgery I was working at, um, lovely, but they were like, oh, we've pretty much got a, a salary GP now because he's done all the exams. So let's put him on 10 minute consults. And so I was basically working full time as a GP, yeah. pretty much four and a half, five days a week. Um, That's you know, quite hard. <laughs> yeah. Seeing like a lot of people I don't think have an appreciation for GPs in general, even within medicine, I think. Yeah. I think people who know, know how, how difficult it is being a GP. Like one minute you're dealing with like a child's ear infection. Next minute you're dealing with someone with depression. Next minute you're breaking bad news about cancer diagnosis. Next minute, you know, you, you're doing something, you know, it's just you're flipping gears all morning and all afternoon and you're seeing anywhere between 20 patients in the morning plus the prescriptions plus the phone calls plus the home visits and i was working in a rural area where um in rural britain they just don't like uh numbers on houses they just have like names like the farm and it's on like a two kilometer stretch of road and you're just driving up and down to find this lovely little old lady that needs her water checked and all the rest of it so it was a very stressful time in my life and i really burnt out at the end of that. And so I just thought to myself, I need to just get out. And I had a few friends of mine that were living and working in Australia and they were just raved about it. And I just, I called up and I was like, I want to do an A&E job. I love A&E. I don't want to do clinic at this point. Um, and I just went out there and I absolutely loved it. It was really game changing for me and my clinical career, but also it gave me the space to think a bit more about the doctor's kitchen idea mm. that I had years ago. And that's ultimately where I, I launched it as, as well when I was in Australia. Okay. Um, if we just, just so I wanted to pick up on something you said. So you said that the working, well, working this sort of GP lifestyle meant that you got quite burnt out. Yeah. Um, what's that like being burnt out? It is, it's where you go home at like 7, 7.30 p.m. and you know, you've got friends who you haven't seen for a while and you just can't be bothered and you're not excited about seeing them, even though you really should be because, you know, it's been weeks or whatever. Um, it's where you don't, you lose the empathy that is so required in, in medicine as well. Um, and I felt that slipping away and that, that wasn't a good position to be in, you know, sort of like what we were talking before when, you've got to do something for a patient and instead of you having the mindset of this is a privilege to work for people in the most vulnerable state it's like I've got to do this and this is my job and I have to do this and there's another thing to tick off the list and that's never really the way I really wanted to feel within medicine Um, obviously you can't be happy joy joy the whole time in medicine you're obviously going to have good and bad days and that's just normal but when it becomes 
persistent mm. and insidious throughout your whole week. That was kind of like, I need to, I need to take a break from this. And I had the sort of foresight and the privilege and opportunity to even do that. You know, a lot of people don't have the opportunity. And a lot of my friends, for example, were supporting families and they had mortgages and they had all these other, you know, um, pressures on them financially. I was independent and I had the opportunity to go away. And I was like, I owe it to myself and I owe it to my friends who can't do this to go out. And that's, that's sort of what was the push for me to go abroad. But yeah, the, the burnout was not a nice place. And I'm, I'm thankful. I don't think I've really had that since in some ways, like obviously during the pandemic and stuff. But I think because there was that sort of like collective energy from everyone being in the same bucket, I mm. kind of like push you through. I think it's pandering out now, which is why you're seeing loads of people leave in droves. Um, but yeah, that was, yeah, it wasn't a nice position to be in. Have you ever been in that? I don't think so. No? Okay. That's why, like, because, because people do talk about burnout as like being a thing. And I'm always kind of curious, like, what does that feel like? Yeah. Because... I kind of said to a friend of mine at one point, like, I don't think I've ever been burnt out. Mm. She was like, uh, you probably have, but you just don't realize it. I was yeah. like, oh, okay, fine. Let me... <laughs> yeah. like, what does it mean to be burnt out? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think I have. Do you have the ability to compartmentalize? Yes. What? Yeah. Yeah. Because okay. there's a really good podcast called How to Take Over the World. Okay. Um, you should definitely check it out. So they, they, they examine uh, different leaders ac across time and history. It's usually people who have passed away. Mm. Um, but you'll find more recent leaders like, you know, Steve Jobs. I think they did Putin as one, as one. And, um, one of the recurrent themes, um, that I've noticed and actually the, the host notices as well is the ability to compartmentalize different issues. So Napoleon was able to put things in one drawer, shut it, and then open another one without really thinking about the last drawer mm. that he's, he's closed. Yeah. I'm learning that skill now, but I definitely didn't have that when I was working as a, okay. as a GP. And I think perhaps that's maybe the reason why you haven't experienced it. Um, but certainly, you know, my, my, in, my inability to focus on one thing at a time is probably why I, I, I got burnt out and it kind of spilled out into my personal life. Right. Yeah. Spilled out into your personal life, meaning? So uh, relationships, not really working out, um, not being there for my friends, mm. um, not having the energy to do stuff in the doctor's kitchen, for example, putting things off, not being there for my family, all those different pressures. I think that's kind of like, yeah, how it played out for me. Yeah. Do you think that was inevitable given the schedule you were, what you were on? Or do you think there's stuff that you could have done at the time to kind of mitigate those kind of personal spillover effects? Of, oh yeah, of definitely. Burnout? I think okay. certainly now, given what I do with all the different strands to the business and how I haven't really outsourced much, mm. You know, running the podcast, writing the books, doing the recipes, starting the app, running the tech team, doing the customer service, doing the charity stuff, all that kind of stuff. I've I'm able to flick. I'm still learning this as a skill, but I'm able to to flick from different roles and positions relatively easier, easily compared to how it was before. And also having a, a partner who's pretty regimented about, look, it's 6.30 p.m., you can't be on your computer that late at night and you haven't spoken to me for eight hours. Mm. That kind of keeps me on the straight and narrow as well. So I'm actually very thankful that I've got someone who can understand the grind and the, you know, the, the sort of need to, yeah. to be there and hustle, but also you know, knows when I need a bit of rigidity to like be like, okay. you need to stop this and I need yeah. to pull you away. So at this point, we're in, we're in Australia, you're working in um, the emergency department yeah. and you're sort of, uh, mulling over this idea of doctor's kitchen like 
what what is the idea in your mind in like the early days? The early days was uh, literally to be that GP who was inspiring people to eat well and giving a bit of the evidence base behind it. So using research, fun, delicious recipes to get people changing their behavior such that it looks after the health long term. Okay. And so it was that always that combination of flavor and function that I always want to instill in any video I did and any recipe and all that kind of stuff. And um, so when I started, I had in my mind that all those patients that I was seeing back in general practice and even the ones that I was seeing in, in A&E as well, because a lot of people don't realize people think of A&E as just like where you see broken bones and uh, heart attacks and all the rest of it. And whilst that does happen, you have a lot of time with patients who are coming in with with niggles and pains and lacerations or, you know, the the product of chronic conditions that are lifelong. Um, and, you know, I'd be chatting to them about this kind of stuff as well. And it was, I had the, the idea of like, you know, starting the Instagram, I had a Wix.com website as well that I never published and like a whole bunch of YouTube videos that I'd had up there, like ready to just press play. Um, and it wasn't until I spoke to one of my senior consultants about it. And I was like, look, I think I'm going to do this nutrition thing. And they were really forward thinking and I really respected her. Um, and she was like, you just got to do That sounds like an awesome idea. You just got to do it. And so, yeah, that was the, that was the push for me to hit play and all that kind of stuff. So did you start filming these videos when you were in Australia? Yeah, I did. And where did the name Doctor's Kitchen come from? It just came out of nowhere. Yeah. And the intention was never to build like a brand around it. It was just Doctor's Kitchen. I just had this idea. Yeah. And then, like, it'll be a website, Instagram page, YouTube channel. Was that what you were thinking at the time? Like 2015, 16? Yeah, that was okay. it. It was just a website, Instagram. I didn't know how to use hashtags. I remember yeah. I posted my first picture and I posted it to my personal Facebook profile as well. And immediately uh, I, I kicked play, uh, click play on it. And then I I was taking a flight to Japan for six days. Uh, Sydney to Japan is very, very close, eight hours. Um, and it's because I was running away from the reaction of my friends. I thought everyone's going to think I'm so stupid. Like, you know, this is, it was like a real cringeworthy moment for me uh, back then. I was so scared about what the reaction was going to be. Um, so I actually, yeah, I clicked play and then I, I jumped on a plane to Japan and then I got all these messages from people and like, that's amazing. That's so cool. And like, uh, why were you scared? I was just scared at the time, dude. Like, you know, a GP talking about food as medicine back then when the wellness industry wasn't as established as it in, as now, like seven yeah. years later, it's, it, it, it would have been seen. I, at least I thought it would have been interpreted as a bit cavalier. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, like you want a qualified nutritionist, therefore, how dare you talk about food kind of yeah, vibe? Yeah, that kind of vibe, but also like just generally like uh, getting in front of a camera and being a, a doctor on mm. YouTube and, and Instagram and yeah. being that kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it feels, sometimes it does feel like that. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if this was your experience when you first got on because I, I remember hearing that. I think you did like 80 odd videos before the, the one that really kicked everything off. But yeah, for, for, yeah. I, I always, I, ne I, I was never really into social media at the time. I wasn't like you know someone who followed Joe Wicks and all these other people. I found out about them after I joined myself. I, I hadn't really done much research in that perspective. I just knew what I wanted to talk about. So it came, came from a, a place of like just genuinely wanting to put out good content out there. 
Were you worried about what your doctor friends would think? Absolutely. That you're peddling that, oh, I'm the doctor. And you're like, oh, I'm just a recently qualified GP. And like, what, what the hell do I know about anything? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> that was definitely, and it's still to this day, if I'm yeah. being honest, there is a shred of that whenever yeah. I talk about what I do. And, you know, despite completing a master's in nutritional medicine, doing all this analysis, having researchers in my team and all that kind of stuff, like I still get all that kind of stuff. I still get that like little voice in my head saying, you don't really know what you're talking about. Because I guess the maybe you've experienced this as well by doing so much research in your various domains. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. Mm. And that, you know, for someone who doesn't really want to be, you know, misleading people or anything. The, 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 the scary thing is like, you know, what if people find out how much I, how little I know, mm. like always that in the, in the back of my mind, I'm not a, a researcher that spends like day in, day out in a lab reading papers all day long. Like I, I've got a, a whole bunch of other things to do. Um, and you'll never have, I'll never have, I have to, I've got, you know, better at, um, working through this myself I'm never gonna know enough to completely get rid of my imposter syndrome. I just have to sit well with how I am right now and do the things that I know are helping people as much as possible and just, just be happy with that. Because otherwise it's, you know, you, you just stop making content. Yeah. Yeah, this is the thing I hear from, like, once once my channel started to go well, while I was still working, um, people would be like, oh, you know, like, I, ha I had a friend who was an obst obstetrics registrar, and, you know, he and his, his wife had written, recently gone through the whole process, and he was like, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there, you know, it, it would be cool to do a book as an obstetrics registrar about what it was like being, sort of, going through the process as a patient, educating young mothers about, you know, young mothers to be about what the process is going to be like. He was like, oh, but I can't do it now. I need to, I need to wait until I'm a consultant because yes. then I'll be qualified. I hear that. And I was like, when you're a consultant, are you really going really to think that? Or are you going to think, oh, I'm a new consultant. I need yeah. to wait until I've got a diploma in reproductive medicine and I've been a professor for 20 years before I think that. Yeah. And even in that position, you're probably going to think, I'm not the world's most qualified person to talk yeah. about this, therefore I can't talk about it. Yeah. And I think in medicine, there is a lot of credentialism, credentialization that goes on where it's like, we, we feel this internally. We feel our friends are going to judge us for it. Maybe some of them do judge us for it. They'll be like, how dare you talk about nutrition without a PhD in nutritional medicine? <laughs> masters? Anyone get a master's through that? It's just a one-year thing. PhD is where it's really at. Yeah. Like we have this thing where we need another badge, another an another certificate to be allowed to do a thing. Absolutely. And I just try and try my best to be like, look, you, do you don't need any qualifications you're you're being a guide you're not being a guru it's yeah all, it's all good yeah absolutely <laughs> like, yeah. and you like what you've just described there has happened to so many of my colleagues who haven't got to that consultancy status and then when they get to that consultancy i've spoken to so many different consultants who some of whom have, have actually been on the podcast and asked for you know the you know oh i i, I did i didn't really i don't I didn't think I said this right, or I feel like I'm too young a consultant to say these things, so I'd rather not do it. I'm like, that's fine. That's you know, I'm not gonna push anything, but it's a story I hear very often. And it's not just with the medicine. So I'm actually gonna call someone out here as one of my good friends. Um, a guy uh, called Jay, uh, who is a serial entrepreneur. He's raised millions of pounds. He has a number of different tech companies under his belt. And he really wants to put out content about conscious entrepreneurship, right? He's super qualified to talk about it. He's been in the game for well over a decade and he just can't get over the edge. He just can't start with his first piece of content to start the wheels in motion because there's something holding him back. I'm not qualified enough. I've only been in the game for a couple of years. I haven't raised as much money as this person. So I think that sort of credentialism 
credentialism. I'm saying that wrong. But um, the word that we just made up, um, that I think holds a lot of people back beyond medicine as well, you know? I remember when I was first starting my YouTuber course, which, you know, we started uh, sort of October 2020. And, you know, it, it has now become by far the, 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 that has been a, a ridiculously profitable decision. But I remember having a Zoom call with two internet friends of mine who also run courses and saying to them, you know, I don't really feel I can do a course teaching people how to, how to be YouTubers. Like I've, I've only got 1.2 million subscribers. And they were just like, <laughs> are you hearing yourself right now? And I was like, I mean, I've only got one for two million subscribers. Like, why Why would anyone sign up to a YouTube course for me? Like, what the hell do I know? Like, t- talk to the guy who's got 20 million subscribers. Yeah. And they were like, you have no idea what you just said. Yeah, how, yeah. how dumb that sounds. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and it, I was like, oh shit, really? It, it happens everywhere. It happens to the best of us, I think. You know, yeah. we downplay our own uh, achievements. Um, and it's like, if you don't, if you don't take a moment to actually reflect on what you've achieved, then... You, you'll never really be happy. You're always chasing that next thing. I actually wrote in the acknowledgements of my third book, uh, I wrote something that might be perceived as narcissistic, but it's really trying to kick myself into the gear of like taking pause, looking back at what I've achieved up to this point, even though on the day-to-day, I don't really think it's a big thing or whatever. I walk around like, oh, I'm a Sunday Times bestseller, yada, yada, yada. Like I, I wrote like, take a moment to enjoy this, this present uh, uh, piece, just take uh I, I can't remember exactly what i said but it was along the lines of you're doing a good thing keep going and believe in yourself and that's it mm. and i think i have to remind myself of that every day i actually have an affirmation that i i read every single day to that effect because it's very easily lost in this world where we're con- constantly comparing ourselves to someone who has more followers or you know more achievements or whatever the accolades that we compare ourselves by and, and it's become more prevalent i guess in this social media driven world do you find that affirmation helps yeah massively um the affirmation is kind of based on um a thread that i read from melanie perkins the founder of canva oh. um so canva is a uh, amazing uh, she's australian isn't she? yeah she's yeah. australian yeah yeah um their offices are in sydney and her founder story is amazing she did it on how i built this oh and i heard that's a good episode oh it's a really it. good yeah. really good episode for anyone that's like thinking about funding and the barriers that you need to get through man she hustled for three years trying to get funding and now you know obviously you know she's bringing the power of design to billions of people worldwide but she wrote this thread um on linkedin and the thread was basically her entire journey step by step of everything i read the whole thing and one of the elements was uh oh they got one of their rejections and she wrote a note to herself which was Melanie, you're doing a really hard thing. You'll get through it and you will build a massively wealthy, productive company that you've always dreamed of, yada, 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 yada. And I've basically written myself a version of that to keep myself in the straight and narrow, Mm. you know, reminding myself of you're doing a hard thing, but you're going to get through it. And it's about 95% persistence and consistency is key to getting through anything. And so, you know, you're going to have up and down days, but if you just remind yourself of the affirmation, it's, it's been it's been good for me thus far. I've only been doing it for about um, a year or so. That's quite a long time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I tried affirmation for about two days and I gave up. <laughs> yeah. So a year, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do gratitude. I've done gratitude for a long time. That's been pretty game-changing for me. I actually shared it on um, Instagram for 700 days. Every day, 
I would, I've been doing it for a lot longer than that, but I thought to inspire my audience, I would do 15 days of three things I'm grateful for every single day. And it could be something like, you know, I got a beautiful coffee or someone smiled at me in the park or yada, yada. Mm. And then I went from 15 to 30 to 60 to 700 plus days. Yeah. Yeah. Every single day. Yeah. Um, one thing that strikes me is that like, so from the outside, like you seem to kind of have it all in that <laughs> you know you got three three cookbooks Sunday times bestseller like ridiculously cool instagram page youtube channel you're doing this cool stuff you've got the background as a gp you've got the credentials to prove it you've got more books on the way i'm sure you've got this new app that you've just launched like why do you need an affirmation saying bro it's going to be okay you're doing a hard thing i i think it's uh it's a good question i think it's easy to look at the veneer of what we put out on social media and not really let people into how much of a shit show the backside is, <laughs> you know? Because if people saw what my morning was like, you know, it's just like constant pandemonium. <laughs> uh, starting a tech company was, it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done because it's bootstrapped, we're not funded and creating a scalable product that is well designed and works functions well and all that kind of stuff requires a lot of effort and a lot of quality assurance and all that kind of stuff and i'm basically doing all that kind of stuff at the moment and i'm i'm learning to love it and i've mm. got that mindset but man it is every day there is a problem every day there is something that i'm trying to figure out every day i'm having pangs of anxiety about whether this is a good investment of well over 100k uh, you know all these different things uh, constantly chipping away mm. at my confidence level. So what you might see on the outside as a guy with all the qualifications and books and, and all this thing going well for him uh, is actually just a, a, a sort of hologram or like a, 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 a mirage yeah. <laughs> of, of actually what the reality is. Um, you know, I, I think there's different ways of describing to myself what and what my day is like like the very vernacular that we use about how we describe our day like oh i'm busy or you know it, it's a pandemonium like i've just said behind the um behind the scenes i think basically leads to what the reality becomes in your mind at least and so i have to get into the habit of actually telling myself it's okay it's okay and that's where the affirmations come in oh, that that resonates so much like <laughs> i have found myself using that kind of terminology like uh, for any anytime i find myself thinking of using the word busy i have like a allergic reaction to yeah that. So I, I i don't do that but still like and, and so i don't say it externally but still internally i you know sometimes get to the end of the day and be like damn that was a pretty mental day but it was yeah. like, really cool and then i'm thinking hang on like why like the, the reason i left medicine was to not to have like a fairly stress-free free life where i don't have to worry about life and death decisions and yet sometimes it feels as if within the team within the business like oh my god we have to get this video out. otherwise like the world's gonna end like, yeah oh, yeah we can just relax take a step back chill the fuck out it's all good yeah i have to remind myself of that and when i and, and then when i realize oh shit i need to remind myself of that i really need to remind the team of that because yeah. they're just going to be going off of my energy which if by default it's like you know let's go let's go let's go yeah you know everyone is going to sort of fall into that you know, fall into step with that. Yeah. And it takes a little bit of like, take a step back. This is actually pretty cool. It's pretty freaking weird that you can have a business that just makes videos, <laughs> makes silly internet videos and, <laughs> you know, does reasonably well. Like, let's let's enjoy this. Enjoy yeah. the journey. Yeah. That, that's that an interesting, I'd love to get your perspective on that actually, because as someone with a large team or a larger team than me anyway, 
uh, how your energy is perceived by others is probably going to have uh, ramifications on, you know, how everyone's feeling in the culture as well within that. Yeah. And I, I have to remind myself of that as well, because even when I speak to Karen, who runs my life, she's always, whenever we have a call, she's like, she always asks me this thing. I've only just realized it now. How are you doing? Like, are you feeling okay? How is your, it's always with the expectation that I'm super stressed and I'm really busy. And like, she's there, she's very motherly. She like can't yeah. do down. She's like like an anti-anxiety pill for me. Every time I talk to her afterwards, I just feel so much lighter. But I think I have to remind myself of that because I'm probably having a, a, a slightly negative impact on the way she perceives everything going on as well. Whereas in reality, you're right, we're, you know, messing around with fruits and vegetables, talking about the health benefits and putting out some colorful content. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, I remember yesterday, you know, we were having, having a discussion with one of the team members about, you know, we're launching a new cohort of our YouTuber Academy. And there was one specific like type of event we were running that I was a bit like, why are we doing this? This seems like a bad idea. And I think just sort of my energy was, or it was it was it was definitely just basically being a massive dick about it and just be like, what the hell's going on here? Kind of vibes. Yeah. And then it took another team member in the room to be like, hey, it's all right. You can, we can have the conversation, but it doesn't have to be like this. Where it's just like my, my default way of, I think, communicating is very just like kind of straight in. Yeah. And that's just really bad. And I was thinking about it afterwards. I was like, wow, that was just really bad. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Why was I, why, why was I talking like that? It's not the end of the world. Yeah. We've still got a whole month to go. And even if we didn't, like, what the hell? We're doing a bringing Zoom course, teaching people how to be YouTubers. Like, this is, yeah. this is not life and death. I don't need to be a dick about it. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, I think... Is that 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 rem reminder sometimes it needs a reminder from someone else that hey the way that you're acting is having this impact on other people stop that yeah yeah because <laughs> yeah. otherwise it's just like it's so easy to just be in our own heads and not realize the impact we're having on others i think yeah absolutely i think so and uh, i think like our frenetic behavior can definitely impact culture at a wider scale in an organization um but it's good that you've got like some insight into that because a lot of people don't get to that until like years and years later when they realize oh i've been a dick to everyone for like five years and that's why no one sends me a christmas card yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i need to need to be reminded of that more often um <laughs> It sort of feels like we're following the chronology, but then we're going off we're going tangents, and then tangents, like we're coming yeah, back. Yeah. So right now, podcast. you're on the flight to Japan <laughs> and you posted your first thing where you're like, I am a doctor and here is a recipe for how to be healthier. And you're really like, oh my God, all my medic friends are going to cringe at this. Yeah. Uh, and then you land in Japan. What, what happens next? Uh, so I immediately met up with some of my friends. Um, it was like... I was basically there because I made the last minute decision to just get the hell out of Sydney whilst I just needed to be out of my head whilst I'd press play and everything. Mm. And the reaction was amazing. I got uh, like so many text messages uh, from friends and even a parody video of my introduction to the to the YouTube uh, thing already within like wow. like t t 12 or 14 hours they'd already made a parody video some of my friends and it was uh, if you've seen like one of the first videos ever put it's the doctor's kitchen on a on a blackboard and then I add fruits and vegetables to it and stuff oh. so they did the same thing with a piece of paper the doctor's kitchen and putting like wine and like you know all this like <laughs> burgers and all this kind of stuff around it and then doing the theme tune dun, 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 but they're literally doing it miming it like that instead of actual like the ukulele music um so so yeah it was a really good reaction and it was again speaking to some of my senior consultants when i got back saying i saw your video and i was like oh. and i was like i really loved it i think it's great i think what you're doing is awesome you should definitely continue all that kind of stuff and it was that sort of early support that allowed me to really push on and carry on and like you know i, did, I don't think i've ever had any viral moments or anything but 
just the consistency of like getting good feedback from people and growing on this medium and, and you know that that instantaneous feedback I think was was really pivotal on me continuing to do what I wanted to do and I never thought about leaving medicine at that point um, or you know moving on from medicine I mean I really really done that over the last month or so but I never saw it as like a book or, you know, media career or anything like that. That was never really the intention. It only really was inserted after things kind of came at me and I was reacting to them rather than being proactive about it. Yeah. I'm learning to be a bit more proactive now because I've sort of been dragged along this journey. And, and only over the last year or so am I really trying to take it by, you know, yeah. what's that analogy? By the horns. <laughs> yeah, by the horns, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've had that as well. Like when you started doing videos i i guess things would have like pulled you along in terms of like I don't know, brand deals or collaborations and all that kind of stuff but now it seems like you're being quite intentional about what you want to do in terms of yeah designing i think and- i think because i had run a business previously and uh, made yeah. loads of mistakes running that and read loads of books about it and been like i really wish i'd read this five years ago but it wouldn't have applied to me five years ago because like you know, a book called uh, The E-Myth Revisited. I don't know if you've come across that. Oh, it, it, it will change your life. Really? Guarantee. 100% guarantee. It will E-myth. change your life. Okay, it it cool. changed my life in 2019 when I read it. Being like, wow. oh my God. It's basically about delegation and why it's so hard. Yeah. And it just like sounds like a simple thing. And I know that when I'd started Six Med, the courses company, uh, I wouldn't, ha- I, I was not ready to receive that message because I was in the mind of, I'll, I'll do everything myself. I do a better job than anyone else of doing the thing that I'm yeah. doing because A, B, C, D, E. And then six years later, I was like, damn, I really wish I delegated more. Oh, my and God. So, that sounds yeah. like I, I need to have read you, that book have, right have, now. You, have you got a business coach? Uh, I, I uh, do in and out, actually. Yeah. So uh, she's had a bit of a break. Um, but I had one at the start of last year, um, monthly for about six or seven months. Nice. Really pivotal. Yeah. Really was just like milestone driven, you know, like we only checked in once a month. Mm everything was yeah that that was really good that was kind of what led me to building the app and actually sticking to a schedule because of her yeah yeah, yeah having a coach is game changing I, yeah. I discovered the whole coaching thing in like 2020 and so i had a, a bunch of different coaches like weekly um so if you're in the market for another one i can recommend you to a guy i know who's also left medicine yeah really comes from that you know he was a cambridge medic a few years ago who now oh, does nice. business coaching stuff yes yeah, and really helps out with yeah just, please yeah. do yeah um, I'd love so we'll, that. i'll do i'll do an intro afterwards but yeah it was um yeah, so I think when I was approaching the YouTube channel stuff, I already had that experience of, f- f- well, failing, but like, you know, failing failing upwards and building a business and sort of making shit up as I went along yeah. with the courses company to the point that when the YouTube channel started to do well and I started to think in terms of it being a business, yeah, I still had loads to learn, like reading the e-myth, reading books like Traction, like half the books here are business books that yeah. I just sort of, books about leadership and management and things like mm-hmm. that, where it felt like every time I was reading a new book, I was like, oh my God, like, it's, it's as if this person has been inside my soul and knows what problems I'm currently having. Yeah. And I'm like, this is not surprising because like businesses have been solving these problems for like 200 years. Yeah. There yeah. is like literature on this. Yeah. And like, I'm a freaking medic. Like I should know that there is literature and guidelines about all of the things I'm struggling with. Yeah. And it's like we hired 15 people before I first, before I read a book about hiring. And I was yeah. like, damn, I wish I'd read that on day one. Oh, because I, like, yeah. Why, why, why am I making shit up? Like there, there is BMJ best practice. There is up to date. Like this is a thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and so I, it was discovering I, that world of, I definitely need to read that book because I I'm in that position right now where I feel like I can't delegate because I know this but I know how to do the customer service I I really want to you know instill exactly. like confidence in them and all that kind of stuff you know yeah that that sounds pivotal because I think that's gonna be a massive blocker to scaling yeah. um, if you can't delegate appropriately um, 
yeah learning that the hard way so i'm definitely going to take so, the, take you up on that so you so, so you started posting uh, sort of videos on instagram yeah. and youtube under this doctor's kitchen thing yeah and it, it sounds like you sort of thought about the branding and music and stuff in the early days yeah what happened next uh so i uh was working alongside doing all that kind of stuff so it was like you know ad hoc posting all that kind of stuff i did like a few restaurant reviews and all that and yeah. you know just, just enjoying like mostly it. on instagram or all in instagram pretty much yeah mostly the youtube stuff was like uh, tutorials and a few recipe videos and stuff but i found even early on even today the the need to constantly video and then edit and then put it out. I was never able to hit a consistent posting schedule, even today. The only things I consistently post on now are things like uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, a bit of Twitter, but my podcast as well is probably the the most rigorous in terms of every, yeah. putting something out every yeah. single. It's mostly like Instagram. Like how how much effort were you putting into these Instagram like uh, posts and videos and things? Probably putting in quite a bit of effort because I would make a new recipe every time. Yeah. I would like write it down. I would also add it to the website. I would, okay. Like there was a big collection of like janky looking videos on yeah. on the old website that have now been taken down. With, got them professionally shot yeah. as we have for the app and stuff. But yeah, it was a lot of that in the early days. It was pretty analog. <laughs> yeah. And so like, uh, so you'd, you'd be working in emergency department and then in the yeah. evenings and weekends, you'd be hustling to get yeah. these recipes out and get Just these videos done. That. Yeah. And the good thing about working in Australia is that they have different working arrangements than they do in the UK, right? So I was working like four days on, four days off, which sounds like the dream for a lot of people over here in the UK. And anytime you did overtime, that should pay you overtime as well. It's just like the thing. It's just very normal over there. Um, and that gave me a lot of time to, to actually put into the Instagram stuff. And so if I didn't have that opportunity and I didn't have that time, I probably wouldn't have been able to consistently post and build up that audience and interact with the community and all that kind of stuff. And I think also there is some like, as you might have found as well, there is some value in being the doc who also does the doc stuff and then does recipes as well that's always been like you know the intrinsic proposition yeah um so yeah that would that was really useful in the early days okay and so like normally in the early days of stuff there's you know it's you're putting a lot of stuff out there and you're not getting like immediate traction mm. um what was that experience like for you like putting all this effort into stuff like w w was it was it like going viral immediately or like how, how, what were the numbers looking like it was pretty slow so like i think i only uh, hit a thousand subscribers like three or four months in oh, um so you're posting for like four months on instagram yeah yeah for not even getting to a thousand followers no no oh, definitely nice. not no 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 it wasn't immediate at all yeah. and then like you know like two thousand and three thousand like daily posting or weekly posting i like, was, was posting it? probably once every two or three days it was pretty ad hoc yeah. um and to be fair like even now it's not as as consistent as it should be like yeah i i'm, I'm really bad at social media um and yeah like it, I, I remember having the first, cause I, so I was in um, Sydney until March, 2016. And then when I got back, I almost immediately got approached by a literary agent and well, like off the back of a few thousand, Instagram off the back of literally followers. three or 4,000. That was wow. it. Yeah. That okay. was it at that time. And when I got my book deal, I think I was literally on five or 6,000. I wow. wasn't a big influencer. At yeah. that time. No way. So they saw something beyond the the number of followers they saw the the value they saw the you know the proposition of a doctor who knows what he's talking about talking about nutrition has got an interesting personal story they saw all those different bits the the brand was like 
also, I, I guess, attractive to them. But now actually in, in future books, we're moving a bit away from the brand and moving more towards Dr. Rupi as a sort of cooking personality. Oh, okay. um, rather than, and that's like an intentional decision because um, as we might talk about later with cookbooks, most people buy into personal brands when it comes to cooking. Yeah, like Amy than, and Nigella and stuff. Exactly. Rather than a brand brand yeah exactly so you'll you'll notice like jamie moved away from the naked chef which is how he actually started he was known as the naked chef now he's jamie oliver and the the same thing could be said of a few other people yotam has always been like yotam and otolenghi that's always been the brand but that's very much personally him um so yeah that's that's sort of the direction that we're going in as well with dr rupio i'm still going to keep doctor's kitchen for the other stuff as well so i think that's like it, it means that i can um, express what the Doctor's Kitchen stands for yeah. with different ambassadors and personalities across different geographical locations. Nice. So I d- I'm not inherently mm. tied to it. That's good. The way I look I look at it is what I'm trying to create is like what Andy Puddicombe has done for Headspace. Andy Puddicombe is the founder of Headspace and the guy who started it and the guy who narrates all of it. But people know Headspace more than they know he- yeah. Andy Puddicombe. I'd never heard of him. And I'm very exactly. familiar with Headspace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I want to do with the Doctor's Kitchen. Yeah, the people in the UK and parts of Australia and America might know Dr. Rupi. Yeah. But I want them to know Doctor's Kitchen a bit more. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think, yeah, this is something that I, I've heard from a lot of creators. I think there is this, there's this sort of like progression in terms of autonomy. Mm. So when you're working as a doctor, you have basically no autonomy. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're kind of being told what to do, especially especially as a junior. And so then the next step is to kind of do your own thing under your own brand. So someone like me, yeah. where it's like, oh, now I have the autonomy to do kind of do what I want. But then you realize when you're at this stage where you can do what you want, the problem is that it's so tried, tied to my personal brand. Mm. And that actually removes autonomy because now I can't just, well, I could, but like I, I, I feel like I can't just like fly to, I don't know, wherever, wherever and just hang out with friends because we have a video event with deadline and it's my personal channel it needs to yeah. have stuff yeah so then the next level of autonomy up is building a brand like the part-time brand yeah that does not have my name in it yeah where my name pushes it initially but it's not so intrinsically tied to it that it yeah. becomes impossible to sort of separate the two things out yeah yeah it sounds like you kind of started out with the brand yeah and now you're branching out into the personal thing but yeah. still benefiting from the benefit of the brand i.e the autonomy and the fact that you don't have to be front and center all the time exactly yeah because what i've realized is that it is as great as it is and as amazing it is to have this feedback and like interaction with with people and it it can detract from the grand vision of what i'm trying to do which yeah. is scale up you know healthy eating for millions of people around the world you know i can't be a singular person doing that it has to be under an umbrella I'm happy doing all the other stuff like, you know, with cookbooks and stuff, because that's not necessarily me having to post every single week. And, and you know, the podcast I do really out of like the love of doing the podcast. So I really enjoy that. But I don't want to be tied to it where it becomes something that you you have to work yeah. toward and you're doing it because you have to rather than you want to. Mm. If you see what I mean? I know what you mean. It's an interesting conundrum that creators are in, I think, that have come from a personal brand. Um, and branching out going forward, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. so, so, you, so you had six thousand followers on Instagram at the time. <laughs> yeah. You got you, you got a literary agent approaching you for a book deal. Yeah. What What was that like? That was really surreal. When I got back into the UK, uh, it was like literally. I started working as a salary doctor, so you know, regular GP surgery, doing a bit of out of hours on the side as well, doing a few courses and all that kind of stuff. So, still keeping the medic medical side of things going. Um, and then a literary agent coming out of nowhere who 
you know, was referred to me probably because someone who is a big fitness influencer referred uh, them to me and said, oh, I followed this guy. He puts out really good content. You should check it out. They checked it out. They saw, oh, this is pretty cool. Mm. And, you know, I see the trajectory of where this is going. And uh, that's where we had the initial conversation. It was just over coffee. And I was kind of like blown away because I was, I was literally going to a late shift that day. Yeah. And I just had a coffee and I think it was like Soho House or somewhere. I was like, this is fancy. And, you know, <laughs> this is a different world to what I'm used to. And also it was kind of, you know, I've only been doing it for like six or seven months at the time. What, why would they, you know, 5,000 followers or, or whatever I was on? It was, it was very, yeah, it was, it was surreal that time. And then, you know, the conversations with, with different publishers and what happened was um, uh, something called a preempt. So oh, the, yeah. the publisher basically preempted it going to auction mm. where, you know, there's a proposal that's delivered and then like whatever. So the proposal actually went to them initially and they bid on it, and um, yeah, the rest is history, really. Which publisher was that? Harper Collins. Oh, nice. It was Thornson's imprint, yeah. um, and it was her name was Carolyn. She's since moved from uh, Harper, but she was like really forward thinking. She really saw it, and it was it was so strange because I went to the News UK building, one of the fifteenth or sixteenth floor, all glass building, looking out into the shard. There's little old me walking in, and on the big TV screen, they've got images of me and my YouTube channel and like my Instagram and some of the recipes and all that kind of stuff. And it was, they were trying to sell them to me, yeah. themselves to me. And I was like, this should be the other <laughs> way around, yeah. you know, this is so weird. Like, why are you trying, big office, you know, HarperCollins, whatever. Um, that, that, yeah, that was very strange. Um, but they really saw, they really painted out this vision of what the brand should be and what they could do with the recipes and the type of people that wanted involved and all that kind of stuff. They really had a vision for it. And so when I would talk about like I was dragged in this uh, this direction, I wasn't drag kicking a stream. Yeah. Obviously, I was loving the journey, but I, I, I never really had thought about what the next milestones are after book one, book two, et cetera. It's only until recently that I've actually figured that out. Mm. Well, that must have been like a, a really cool experience. It was a very cool experience. Very surreal. And at the same time, I don't know if you've had the experience with your mom, but my parents are like, uh, yeah, okay, this is cool. But like, you know, you know stick to medicine. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Even today, like, yeah. you know, my dad's always asking about how, how work was and stuff. I mean, I, they know I'm on a sabbatical now, yeah. but like, you know, like, oh, when you going, when are you going back to the hospital? I'm not I'm not going back straight away I'm taking some time I want to focus on these things first you know it's it, it is kind of jarring every time I get that yeah I mean I've, I've been having those conversations multiple times a week for the last like four years so <laughs> you're <laughs> yeah. a good company <laughs> yeah yeah exactly I, I think it's an Asian thing as well you know the status that's that's inherent in being a doctor in the community is very hard to yeah. be yeah I sometimes think about it like I, I, th I think I wonder if it's less about the status and like my, th my, uh, my theory on this is like, you know, with my mum, for example, she doesn't actually care about status and I'm sure your parents don't directly either, but yeah. it's like um, in, in their generation, medicine and solid job is the path to the good life. Yeah. Where actually, and for even pe people working in tech right now, like it's such a, a different thing than it was in our parents' generation. Yeah. And so, you know, working at IBM and working away for 40 years and getting the company car and the health insurance and stuff was the path to the good life. Mm. That is not the path to the good life anymore. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I think our, our parents are probably still in that mindset where a solid job is actually the thing to optimize for because yeah. they have our own best interests at heart. Yeah, absolutely. So. And I think, 
Yeah, you're you're right. I don't. I think it's like um, they wouldn't label it as status. Yeah, but it's it's definitely connected to happiness, I guess. You know, because mm. you you got uh, st- stability and yeah. you know consistency, and you're doing ultimately a, a good thing. You know, yeah. but, but not many vocations can really say that about their day to day. Do you so? Do you get the sense that? From your from, from from your parents or from other people that you have left behind the noble thing of saving lives to be just another one of those influences that writes cookbooks, Ugh, kind of vibes. Uh, oh, not really. In in a in a in a small way, I think probably not as harsh as yeah. that. Uh, but but yeah, I, I think there is um, an element of that. However, I've thought I've obviously done a lot of thinking around this in terms of what is the amount of effective altruism i guess you could call it Mm. that you can conjure up using your profession and i think on a one-to-one basis it's a lot more literal and it's a lot more it's tangible in that i'm having a direct impact on this person by giving them my time prescribing giving them a plan etc etc whereas when you're doing something across a screen you don't really understand what the tangible impacts are uh, and and how do you measure that impact? One of the reasons why I'm starting in the tech world because I I want to be able to actually measure the impact that we're having mm-hmm. tangibly on people's health using different metrics eventually. Um, and unless you get those lovely emails and texts and voice notes from from fans like your recipes have really helped me out. This is my story, and I've had I'm blessed to have had many of those. You don't really get that one-on-one connection. You don't get that like thank you card, you yeah. know. Um, so I think that that's definitely one of the elements of it. But I, my family and my parents are pretty understanding about the magnitude of the impact, and the reason why is because some of the friends have started benefiting from yeah. my content, <laughs> nice. and they're calling them. It's like yeah, I don't review stuff, and like you know, my sugar levels have improved, and like you know, my cholesterol is down, I've lost weight, and like all our friends are losing weight. You know, there there are tangible impacts that they're seeing. Like yeah. he hasn't met them, and that, isn't that amazing? The fact that you can have an impact on people that you've never even met. Mm. Weird. <laughs> yeah. If, if, so if, if if someone had told you kind of when you were doing GP training, for example, this was going to be how it would end up. Yeah, or, or, definitely yeah. not. I would have thought I would have left medicine along before I, I did any of this kind of stuff. Actually, yeah. I when I was doing management, uh, I had a buddy of mine who actually left straight after doing F2 and worked for a bunch of biotech companies, San Fran, now moved to New York and he's loving life. Um, and so I was amongst a community of people that were already thinking about what life was like after medicine um but yeah no i I wouldn't have thought i would have been doing this when i was gp training no way there's definitely not that wasn't that it wasn't the intention to to tv and programs and all that kind of jazz so what's what uh, when you when you're getting kind of approached by a publisher like this to do Mm. to do a cookbook yeah what does that what, what what does that look like like what what dream are they selling you yeah, so they're, they're selling, uh, so it was a one book deal, my initial book deal. Um, they're selling uh, positioning, 
when they're going to be launching, what the competitor titles are, what their aspirations are for the brand going forward, yeah. how they're investing in you uh, in, in more than just one book, even though they're only giving you one book deal because they want to de-risk it to themselves, yeah. um, but also the resources that they're throwing at you as well. So photography, uh, prop stylists, um, copy editing, yeah. um, testing, all this different stuff. There's a whole army of people that never get really seen in the cookbook making process um, that costs a lot of money as well. So it's it's no wonder people don't do more self-published cook, professional cookbooks right. anyway. Um, loads of ebooks and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. Why? Like, why? It in, costs a lot. So like, to my mind, it seems that recipe, decent photos, long 85 millimeter zoom lens, F1.4 yeah. sorted. Yeah, I yeah. I guess there's more to it than that. There's a lot, yeah. So I mean, even like right, where we're sitting right now, you know, we're, we're surrounded by certain lights and cables and cameras and all that kind of stuff we have on a cookbook shoot you have not just a food stylist but you have a prop stylist as well like a food stylist you have a food stylist and a prop stylist and a sous chef okay. and a uh, camera person and then their hand as well you have all different types of um, angles that you shoot from okay there's like a story to be told and there are very subtle things that i only learned about when i actually went to the food shoot about how the whole book has a particular aesthetic and, you know, I used to think this is just, like you said, like top down, yeah. and, you know, that's about it. But, you know, in the first couple of books, there were little edges, like little stylist elements that tell a story of the whole thing. On the, on the book that you're looking through at the yeah. moment, I was very much uh, give, trying to give the impression of simplicity. Yeah. So that's why most so of nice. the... Yeah, most of the recipes I want are top down <laughs> and show yeah. you the indulgent aspects of eating. And also like, you know, um, they they minimize the clutter. So if you look at the, the first couple of books, there's loads of like soda water on the side and yeah. there's like scattering of parsley everywhere. Yeah. They've got like, you know, folded napkins. I was like, no, I want, I want to get rid of all that. And I want to tell this kind of story. So yeah, that the Persian style brown lentils is sort of, that's the the way I wanted the whole book to appear. So yeah, pointing at the camera, <laughs> and that's like this is so good. Yeah, and uh, like yeah. <laughs> it's so it's weird because um, even that that's a a paper back, yeah. right? And the hardbacks, so, I imagine, so the hardbacks are more expensive, yeah. and then they also have uh, an image per recipe. This has got eighty images, I believe, mm. whereas the hardbacks will have like hopefully an image per recipe, and that's like the dream, but. That costs a lot yeah. because you've got to get printing costs, you've got to get paper costs, you've got to get all these different things. So everything kind of, everything is like compounded into to one, everything that goes into making that book is, is super expensive. <laughs> okay, so for example, I'm yeah. just curious here. So you've got this image, yeah. which is like this super sick looking, sorry for people on, on the audio. You should watch <laughs> this on YouTube. Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll see the, the is, is this like, a real dish that you cooked it's or is real. it like a fake yeah, food yeah. or no, someone no. else cook it or like yeah no so so when you see like uh uh an image of like an m&s chocolate cake yeah. or a mcdonald's a lot of that is staged a lot of that is fake everything that we've shot in all the books is always real it's cooked there i oversee everything like uh, do you cook it yourself or do you have do no you have no someone? no i don't cook oh. anything yeah oh, yeah okay. no, there's like professional cooks cooking because they have to be like an assembly line because we're doing like sometimes eight nine recipes in a day okay and you know they're like professional chefs and they're following your recipe they're that you following came up my with in your, recipe in your bedroom. <laughs> to the state no, okay. not my bedroom but yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the to the like 
the the detail they're following every single recipe and what what people don't realize is that i'm so busy like involved in like how it's being shot and looking at the the draft image and like maybe getting my hand in there or something yeah. like that the food's being cooked at the same time okay so this is literally like an assembly line and it yeah. happens over the course of about a week as well so these things are like my goodness really intense. and i guess they're also like testing the recipes to make sure that the like it's actually one tablespoon of olive oil rather yeah. than 18 or whatever yeah so usually ideally what should happen is you create the recipes and then i work with a recipe tester who then tests all the recipes and then they go back to me and I review the changes and make sure, you know, they're in line with my nutrition principles and all the rest yeah. of it. What we've done in the next book, actually, um, which I haven't talked about yet, is we actually uh, crowdsourced uh, loads of recipe testers from my newsletter list. So I went to, I looked at on MailChimp, you, you can look at your like most engaged subscribers. So I looked at my most engaged subscribers and there were about 10,000 people who open it like, you know, more than four or five times in the last like three months, let's say. So engaged subscriber. And so I sent an email out to them saying, look, I need some foodie testers. Here's a Google form. If you're interested, then fill out this form and then we'll send you a single recipe for you to test in your own time. You fill out a questionnaire, you take images of it. We might use the images in the back of the book to you know, make a nice collage and stuff. Uh, and your name as well, if you want to be in the acknowledgements. And we got something like 1500 responses wow. to that. Nice. Yeah. And then we ended up sending so so we also had to take their dietaries as well. So you can imagine this is an organizational nightmare. So we got all the dietaries. We had to match all the 100 recipes that I'd created and, and also gone through the test and then give each recipe to specific people based on their dietaries and needs yeah. and, and likes and dislikes. And then they filled out that. And then I read over 900 responses in a big Excel form of all the pain points, all the issues that they might have had, all their feedback, rating, would they make this recipe again? All these questions. And that's going to go into the next book. Um, so each recipe has been tested in a real actual kitchen 10 times. Wow. <laughs> and from all over the world, dude, we had people from like Nepal, Australia, rural France, Canada, America, like everywhere. Like people, because obviously the newsletter is, you know, they get it everywhere. So yeah, it was, it was insane. Amazing. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. What, so if, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if you're allowed to share your own numbers, with this, but like what, what are the economics generally of cookbook publishing? Like yeah. what sort of ballpark advances do people get? Like yeah. how much do they sell for? What are the royalties like? I'm, yeah. I'm very curious to understand what, what this process is. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give an example of my first book and um, I don't usually talk about this stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk candidly about it. So the ballpark for advances for cookbooks range anywhere between 20 grand to over 200, 250 grand. Wow. Um, okay. It can be huge. For my first book, it, I, I got a really good offer. It was 75 grand considering wow. That's not, not much social media following. Really, really good. <laughs> yeah, not much yeah. social media following. No traction and book, books, nothing like that. And was, was that like international or just UK or what was that? It was uh, uh, worldwide. Okay. Yeah, so worldwide rights. So for people listening, you know, uh, you can separate the markets into UK and Australasia and uh, America and Europe and all that kind of stuff. So there's worldwide rights. Uh, and then also you can um, separate it further out into like TV rights as well. So whether they have TV rights as well. So let's say that someone picked up The Doctor's Kitchen and then turned it into a TV show that was tied to the book, very much like what Jamie Oliver does mm. or Nigella, you know, 
are those going to be separate? Do you have uh, a royalty bonus when you get a TV show? Um, and that, that bonus, I, I'm not actually too sure. It could be probably in the tens of thousands, if not more. And then um, there's a, a royalty share as well. And so that can be like 10%, but that depends on a threshold and that threshold can be up and down. My threshold was super high. It was like 80,000 copies. And so mine hasn't started paying until like, from the first book until like two years ago mm. because we've since sold over 100,000 copies of book one. But, you know, obviously the 80,000 threshold was super high. So they're like de-risking it to themselves because creating a book like that costs like a, a ton of money. Um, wow. So yeah, that's that's the basic economics of of a cookbook. So so the so the idea is that um you know so you, so you would get the advance and then you earn out the advance through royalty payments yeah. and then at some point you start getting royalty checks once you've earned out your advance exactly and it sounds like you've now earned out your advance yeah so you get quarterly royalty checks yeah i'll get quarterly royalty checks from harper okay and uh yeah yeah the funny thing is uh i've since become vat registered and i want to go oh. into the business and that's so the whole <laughs> thing but yeah, yeah that's basically how it works nice yeah and so is it a sustainable full-time living to be a cookbook author? Uh, <laughs> very broad question. <laughs> yeah, very important question. Um, it depends on what your standard of living is. <laughs> okay. So I think if you're the kind of person that can churn out and has the opportunity to churn out a cookbook a year yeah. and wow. can, yeah, it's a lot, of, a lot of work, and can demonstrate sales yeah. of a cookbook a year, then yes, I think it could be if you're happy with something around 60K a year, let's say. As, wow, yeah. that's tiny compared to what I... Yeah. So, so you're saying every year, yeah. make, make a cookbook from scratch and demonstrate the ability to sell it. Yeah. Are we talking like hundreds of copies, thousands of copies, tens of thousands? Like, what, oh, do you know what kind I, of... Author? I would say like a good, uh, a good performing cookbook would be 30 to 40,000 copies. <gasps> yeah, I would say that. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot, a lot. And so it's it, it's no wonder you see the same chefs yeah. in the sort of top sellers list, right? You have uh, great chefs, Jamie, Nigella, Nadia Hussein, Rick Stein. These are really tried and tested chefs mm -hmm. that people love and adore. And so breaking into that market is very hard. So if you look at what Joe Ricks has done or uh, who are the slimming, the two people who are slimming, Pinch of Nom, they've done phenomenally well. They sold hundreds of that if not millions of books you've got rukmini uh, Aya, who sold the roasting to another really good book. oh I've you would that. love that it's a great it. book yeah it's sick yeah <laughs> a friend, a friend gave it to me as a gift he was like right, you need to get rukmini's books are fantastic she sold over a million copies okay. across her series of books and they're with good reason they're amazing she was actually on my bbc show uh, as well um yeah if you can get that there's only a few people who actually go into that level of of you know scale yeah most people do a cookbook and then they'll never do another one because they either you know didn't sell as much or you know it just just didn't work out for them so, so even what about you is is just the publishing business enough to be a full-time living no no you need to do side hustly things as well oh yeah all the side i think like having a cookbook is a really nice business card because it allows you to do other things like you know you get to do a bit of tv shows you do some of the live cooking events uh, it has opened the doors for me doing like collaborations with catering companies where I design a lot of the menus for buildings across the UK. So I, I've got uh, a collaboration with a company called Gather and Gather and uh, they do all the professional catering for over 200 buildings um, in the UK, including like Sky, Lloyd's TSB, mm. Vodafone. So they've got big, big kitchens 
and they have my recipes like every single week that I've designed quarterly for them um, that are like, you know, nutritionally balanced and they have the story and all the rest of it. And I'll do some like corporate speaking events for them as well. So I think it's a really good business card yeah. to get your foot in the door and it demonstrates a bit of authority. Um, but if you can demonstrate like sales of like more than 40, 50, 60,000, that gets you a, a lot more, um, I, I believe. Okay. So I guess like, yeah, the, this is similar to like, I've spoken to a bunch of other like nonfiction authors, like okay. uh, generally uh, nonfiction self-help slash business yeah, authors yeah. who are like, yeah, it's really hard to survive just off the back of royalties on and advances from books, unless you are a James Clear or a Mark Manson who sold m million copies plus. And exactly. at that point you're in the sort of upper echelons. Exactly. But I'm kind of, kind of until that point, you still need to hustle and do courses and yeah. corporate speaking and, and this, that, and the other. Totally. It sounds yeah. like it's similar in the, in the food genre. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And people like, again, have this idea of like, oh, he's got a cookbook and he's Sunday Times bestseller and like he gets to go on TV and stuff and they equate that with, with wealth. Yeah, like in my head, you're making millions without doing anything because it's all passive income from the book sales. No. But presumably I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit off with that estimate. No, no, you're off with that, okay. massively off. But I think what it's allowed me to do is build a foundation, a trustworthy foundation to jump off into loads of other activities that I actually, I really want to do. Like I love doing books, don't get me wrong. I, I love the feel of cookbooks myself and the whole process and like that week is amazing. And you know, we're about to do like a, a photo shoot with one of Jamie Oliver's uh, photographers and stuff. So like the opportunity that cookbooks has given me is amazing. Mm. Um, and I know they're being used. You can like read the Amazon reviews and stuff. People love them, but it's it's not a sustainable income unless you're willing to you know live on quite a well yeah. I wouldn't say it's a small salary but it's like you know with everything else that you have to do to maintain this brand it it, it goes very very quickly okay. um, and I haven't even talked about agency fees as well because that full advance is cut by oh, like twenty percent yeah percent yeah, that's yeah. what it is in yeah. Oh, it's a similar It's like advice. industry standard. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's say I wanted to make a cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> and I get a deal for making a cookbook. And and then let's say I'm, you know, they're like, oh, Ali's Kitchen, the cookbook is is on Saturday Kitchen. Yeah, whatever, yeah. Whatever the show is called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would they pay me for appearing on Saturday Kitchen? Uh, so how, how does that work? <laughs> so if you're doing a appearance, so I've done appearances in like this morning and yeah. a few other. So when you're doing an appearance, they don't pay you for a guest contributor. But if you are being a guest contributor, it, it, I mean, it's Minimal. it's like 200 400 pounds something like that to just appear um and when you think about the logistics of it you know it's like quite a few hours of your time it's like half a day um so you know all, all that stuff it 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 doesn't really make ends meet yeah. unless you're going there and you're promoting your book you know when i when i did like a this morning uh promotion i think for the first time we must have sold like three or four thousand books in like half a day oh, wow. just by appearing that's interesting and, yeah because like in the in the sort of business non self-help genre uh, terrestrial tv is pointless and it's all about podcast appearances yeah and i guess in the cooking genre that's actually an area in which people do translate and convert into sales yeah yeah i guess it depends on the audience so yeah. like what i same thing when i did saturday kitchen again it went straight to number one on amazon because that's a book buying audience they're super engaged they see the recipes they immediately go and buy it um whereas a pot if you're listening to me on a podcast 
I'm, unless you're like, unless I've described so beautifully the, yeah. the, the, the recipes that you can make from my book, it's not really going to translate yeah. into something. Whereas if um, you were to do a thing about how, sort of how to, how to build a part-time brand while being a doctor and stuff, yeah. and you tell the story of that on a podcast, some people, yes. the podcast listen, like, oh, hello, that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The number of like business books that I've bought immediately on Audible or yeah. something, <laughs> like, you know, after listening to what I pause that, or like I, I listened to My First Million oh, quite a bit. Good. I love it. I love that podcast. Yeah, but I've actually had to take a break from it because it's just too consistent too many episodes too man. consistent yeah, like, i had to have to like i can't listen to these 100 episodes i know <laughs> yeah totally i started yeah. listening to the backlog yeah. over christmas because I, I ran out but actually uh what i've realized is because they give so many ideas it's actually detracting from what i need to focus on yeah. right now which is the business yeah. my start side hustle or hustle whatever you want to call it and so i've actually had to take a break from my first million because it's just yeah too much content but multiple times i've listened to that and like sam Parr's like name check robert green obviously you know 48 powers of law 50 powers of law or whatever it's called um and uh a whole bunch of other books i've like, paused and that like, clicked i'm like one click by yeah i've definitely got that more audible listen yeah. to speed yeah, i find with podcasts there's almost like peaks peaks and troughs so like for example in 2019 i was listening to hundreds of podcasts that year especially while i was traveling back and forth an hour each way to work yeah when I was doing f2 and then it was like all of those ideas from the podcasts. Uh, in, a, in a way, then there was a two-year period of putting them into practice. Yeah. And now I'm getting like literally like, getting back into podcasts in the last week. So I was I've been listening to my first million and a couple of episodes of Tim yeah. Ferriss, having not heard heard a podcast for like a, a year or two at this point. Wow, a year. Yeah. Like wow. I, I I went completely off podcasts as the business was growing and as I was like actually business audiobooks are the thing I need in my life right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas now with the podcast, I find that the conversational is really great and you get a lot of ideas, but yeah. when you're in execution mode, you need to be executing and learning about the specific thing. And then is it sort of like divergence and convergence? Yeah. Like divergence of ideas that you get from podcasts and then convergence when you're like, right, this is my angle. I know I'm making an app. I'm going to listen to all of the audiobooks around how to yeah. build an app and how to scale a tech startup yeah. kind yeah. of vibe. That's a that's a really good point. That's basically the situation that I'm in. And in fact, the last audiobook I read, I listened to was uh, Inspired. And that's basically all about product teams and what the structure of that looks yeah. like. Because as a non-tech founder, I need to know what does an engineer do? What does the designers do? How do you create a coherent systems such that you can actually scale a company and know who you're hiring as well so yeah taking a break from podcasts has actually been pretty good for me because i was an avid podcast listener. i still sort of am but i will come back to it at some point yeah. why the app and why the what app? is the deal with the app i've just downloaded the app and i'm going to start following the recipes on the app but yeah what's, yeah. what's the rationale there so the i've wanted to do an app for years right um so ever since i two years ago brought in a bunch of followers uh to investigate what the barriers to healthy eating were for them hmm. i had this idea of creating a uh, an application or a web-based platform where i could teach people how to cook well every single day and keep them on the straight and narrow and that has kind of morphed into a recipe planning app uh, that you can download on your phone and links with supermarkets so you can actually order the ingredients no with one click. Sick. Yeah, you can't do that right now. Okay, <laughs> one day. MVP, but that's sort of yeah. the product roadmap. Okay. And I've got a whole bunch of other ideas as well that I'll, I'll chat about very, very briefly. But the, the app has been in the back of my mind the whole time because I really wanted to create the headspace for healthy eating and really enable the brand to span beyond what I can do in the UK and, and actually have an mm. impact uh, there, uh, going forward. And so, yeah, the process of building it has been crazy because we're not just another recipe app. 
we, we enable people to uh, filter the recipes according to health goals. And so me and the research team look through a whole bunch of research and you can find out our process for refining all this research on the website. And we look at the dietary patterns and the ingredients that align with things like skin health, mental health in terms of nutritional psychiatry, uh, brain health, like a, a whole bunch of different health goals. And, and even inflammation using the dietary inflammatory index as well. And then you're allowed to uh, filter according to your dietary preferences as well as your allergens and intolerances and dislikes. And then you get a library of all these different ingredients such that you don't have to think about what you need to do with the Brussels sprouts that you see in Tesco's or whatever. You have loads of ideas with step-by-step -step images of everything so you can cook well every day. The product roadmap is really to create something like a Spotify playlist that delivers you in, uh, delivers you recipes that actually you want to intuitively mm. cook based on your preferences and what you've liked before. And then also that one click ability to get the ingredients. But also I think in the future, which is what I think I described on this podcast, I can't remember it was the other one that we recorded, but basically where you have ghost kitchens creating the recipes for you and delivering it oh, such that it's nutritionally balanced for you. We also want to have wearables indicating what you should be eating as well, based on things like ordering data, exercise data, continuous glucose monitoring data, microbiota data as well. So that's all the stuff in the future, but we're starting with a very simple recipe app, which is the Doctor's Kitchen app you can get on an Apple Store. And it's just an Apple Store at the moment because I'm bootstrapping it. Mm. And that, I mean, that is a whole podcast in itself, I guess, in terms of like how you fund everything, because everything that I've channeled from the books that led to the podcast, that's led to corporate speaking events, all that has been channeled into creating this app. So I'm basically putting everything on red. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely in our pod too, I want to explore the, the economics of building an app Yeah, and what it's like building out the product team, what it's like outsourcing stuff, what it's like working with agencies. I think that's so interesting. Yeah. I think a lot of people have this dream of like, oh, I'd like to build an app someday. <laughs> And any like I, I get so many medics that come to me like hey I, I, you know I I really want to build an app and I'm yeah. always like oh are you, are you sure about that yeah yeah I <laughs> and know. especially like non-technical founders oh oh it's fine I can come up with the idea I can do the mock-ups I'll just I'll just hire someone be like yeah. hey how much do you think it costs to hire someone it's like yeah. a lot of money but like yeah. what surely it's you know a few thousand dollars I can hire someone in Bangladesh like have you ever tried it's it's not that it's not yeah. that easy yeah <laughs> there's yeah. all this stuff around building an app that I'm sure you're you're now familiar with totally yeah and if you skimp out on the costs as well like it'll come back to bite you yeah. as well so I I. I learned that and then yeah it, it, there's a whole podcast episode on that. i'd love to get your opinions on that as well actually, yeah because like, as a non-tech founder i'm learning a lot of things the hard way but i feel like i'm going along this educational process where i could perhaps nice. teach other people as well have you read uh, the hard thing about hard things no oh amazing audiobook uh oh, it's by ben horowitz from andrew oh, horowitz yes yeah. ben horowitz yeah yeah, yeah which course. is all about the struggles of building a tech company it's sick Definitely so something that I need yeah. to listen to. <laughs> so the E-Myth Revisited <laughs> will change your life. Hard thing about hard things is quite nice. It, it, it won't change your life. Uh -huh. um, are you are you thinking of hiring any people full-time recently uh, uh, in the near future? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Okay. Uh, I, I have tons of recommendations. Okay, cool. That front. Uh, it's going to be great. And I'll introduce you to my business coach as well. Yeah. If, if there's a good fit. Definitely, man. I feel like this has been like a business therapy session. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Well, great thank stuff. you for coming on. Um, my pleasure, man. We're going we're gonna to do a collab where you're going to teach me healthy weeknight meals. 100%. <laughs> I've downloaded the app. The app is sick. We'll put links to the books, the apps. And thank you for uh, gifting us this little lovely Doctor's Kitchen 321 <laughs> um, book.
And yeah, it's been great having you on. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.